Well, friends. Well, that was completely out of sync. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, friends, we hope you had a very nice hog watch. Welcome back to Radio Moorport, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. Rating, ranking, reviewing, analyzing, discussing, arguing, and generally rambling about the uh, genius of the man himself. I am Colm, and I'm joined, as ever, live from the land of the rising sun. Nicholas Cage. Uh, sorry, Steve Hill. <laughs> Always get those two mixed Think up. Think if I get Nicholas Cage on his podcast, you'd still be here. Forget about it, pal. Mm-hmm. Your feet wouldn't touch the ground. Not even. <laughs> so we are here to talk today about monstrous regiments um which is one i was particularly curious to revisit because i i literally this was only the, the second time i read it and the first time i read it i think was quite soon after it came out um i think i mean mm. um, my, yeah we, we've talked before on this about like uh you know we both went to the same course in college together and i had a big influence on us and, and i kind of divide my my reading into like pre-college and post-college you know that if i'm someone's asking me about a book and i'm saying oh, yeah, i wasn't mad about it but i did read it before i was in college so maybe i just you know like uh i was i, I don't know I, I suppose i was like less patient and i more for want of a better word narrow-minded in what i look for out of, out of a good book you know um so i was curious to revisit this one and it certainly yielded a lot of really uh interesting fodder for discussion but, yeah, before we jump into that, I suppose we should quickly recount the plot to bring people up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'll begin yeah, if you don't we'll mind. Away. So, we open with, let's see, what was her name now? That's that's a very <laughs> terrible way to start Polly. now. Polly. Polly Oliver. No, wait, Polly, is Polly Oliver her no. name? Or is that the name yeah, of the song? Yeah, it's the name of the song. Her name's Polly. She changed, she, her like pseudonym when she's in drag uh, is Oliver. That's it, yeah. So Polly is a young woman in uh, the land of Borogravia. 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 It's a difficult word. Borogravia. Yeah. But anyway, a young, a young girl in one of the more backward countries of the disc, anyway, uh, where there is currently a war going on with uh, Ankh-Morpork. And she sneaks out late at night one day, disguised as a young man, in the hopes to get recruited for the army. Uh, her reason for doing this is that her brother uh, was recruited earlier on and he hasn't come back, so she wants to find him. So she goes to the next town over where she won't be recognised because the village she's in is particularly small and everyone would re- recognise her. Uh, and there she comes across the Sergeant R- yeah. Jackrum, and uh, a large, boisterous, big-bellied man who uh, seems very happy for her to sign up, thinking she's got great potential. And while she is there, she also witnesses a number of other young men being signed up, including an Igor, a vampire, and a troll. Um, do you want to tell us what happens next? Yeah, well, well, just to, to track back briefly, um, her uh, motivation for, for going after her brother is also partly driven by the fact that um, her brother, it's it's uh, he's developmentally disabled in some way and um, quite mentally slow, but because of the because of the laws, the kind of theocratic, patriarchal laws of Bargravia, he will inherit the inn they work in that their father runs. Um, and she she had 
I suppose her plan was that he would inherit it, but she would essentially, you know, like keep it running. She's got the head for business and all of that. But if he's gone, I, I, I can't remember whether it's, it says who it will go to or whether she'll have to marry her or something. But so, uh, yeah, she goes, as you said, and um, uh, discovers these different characters being recruited. You have uh, an Igor, a vampire, a troll, um, several other uh, um, young men. She's kind of like worried throughout about her ability to correctly uh, put herself across as, as a man. Uh, she's quite proud of some of the steps she's taken, um, but she's still unsure. At night, in one of the inns they stay in, when she goes out to uh, go to the toilet, and I love that she's practiced being standing up, uh, but someone, an unknown person, says that she's doing well but that she needs socks and passes her socks to shove down her, her crotch basically uh, to act as a, as a bulge so she knows someone has um, discovered that she's actually a woman but is helping her and she doesn't know who that is um, and then as it goes on uh, they go deeper into uh, I suppose into the theater of war um, and they begin to get a feeling that the war isn't going very well. They're up against, uh, nominally up against Slovenia, a neighboring country whose hmm. prince, Prince Heinrich, is like distantly possibly the, the main heir to the Duchy of Borogravia. And no one has seen the Duchess of Borogravia for a very long time. She sort of has an almost uh, uh, semi-divine position amid the Borogravian peasantry. Like they have their their main god is Nogan, who we briefly encountered in in uh, the last hero who's this like utterly repressive petty small-minded like the equivalent of like if you promoted one of the people who like uh you know like runs is uh like runs the dole office if you promoted them to the position of deity <laughs> sorry I have, I have a deep bias against such people from from the time when i was unemployed but uh <laughs> So um, so they've got he's like their official god, but the Duchess is almost like the equivalent of how like in Catholicism in a lot of cultures like the saints acquired the status of kind of semi divine beings and people would pray to them for particular things and so the, on. The Holy Mary, it's a bit yeah, like. yeah. Um, but but I, I get feel it's sort of less like like in Catholicism, Mary is you know like the, like the Pope and the, the Church like they champion her status within it i get the feeling mm. like the duchess's status within nuganism nuganitism isn't quite as official as that it's more something that like uh she's kind of accrued but anyway um they so they begin to get, get feeling that like the war isn't going very well in addition of going up against slovenia they're also up against an alliance of other nearby countries um most notably ank morpork because uh they have been taking down the Klax Towers because it's an abomination unto Nogan. Many, many, many right. things are abominations unto Nogan, which make living life in Borogravia quite difficult. Uh, and we get a picture of what it's like. In the colour of blue. Yeah, babies, <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> we get a picture of what it's like on the other side of this uh, military conflict when we get an encounter with the commander of the um, uh, Ankh-Morpork delegation of the Alliance. So, so who's that? That's our good friend, Commander Vines, who we've seen in many other books before. And it's very interesting that for a lot of this book, we kind of see him from the other side, like viewed um, from 
a very very different angle than from what we've seen him before particularly the last time we saw him was in Nightwatch where we saw him as a very vulnerable relatable person and here it's a little bit like we're seeing him through the uh, through the lens of propaganda uh, I think at one point they say that he's known for drinking blood. Yeah. Or is no? Is that right? Well, he's, he's known as the butcher like anyway, and, and they um. Mm. No, it's, he eats raw meat, isn't it? Yeah. That's it. He eats raw meat. Just, yes. on, a, on a side and, note, um, I he then orders raw meat when he hears about this, and I couldn't tell yeah. <laughs> whether that was just like he hears about that for the first time and is like, "Fuck it, I'll pay up to there." Uh, you know, the rumors about me and inspire a bit of awe. Or whether that rumor started because he's been ordering raw meat for Angua when she's in her wolf form, and that's why he does it. Oh, and yeah. I, like that certainly sort of makes sense. But because he never thinks that, or you never see him giving the meat to Angua, I didn't know whether he just when we see him ordered, it's it's just him playing up or not. Anyway, sorry, yeah, it's like diversion yeah. there. Go on. Yeah. So uh, Vimes is trying to uh, plan well. Uh, it's hard to say an attack or a defense. He's kind of basically trying to figure out uh, this country because he thinks that it's kind of a broken country, that like the religion itself is a mess. And he's basically just trying to figure it out at the time. Um, back with the, the monstrous regiment, the uh, all the... Well, actually, at the time, uh, around this time, Polly is discovering that a lot of the other members of the regiment she's in are actually mm-hmm. women as well. Uh, lead... While Jack Rome is the sergeant, we have uh, Corporal Strappy, who is this absolutely horrendous little prick who's uh, making all their lives miserable by screaming and like trying to pretend that he's more patriotic than them and basically just trying to make their lives miserable as much as he yeah. can. Um, after some time, they get to a small village where they encounter uh, the Rupert, which is the captain, Captain Blouse, Blouse. Yeah, who's, who's the officer to command yeah. them all. Uh, and then at this time, too, uh, Blouse gives Jackram his like kind of retirement, um, because uh, and it's sort of implied that Jackram has been dodging this and is actually well, well overdue for retirement. And he also, much mm. to Strappy's horror, uh, tells Strappy that he'll be coming to the front with them. Um, and shortly, That's shortly right. thereafter, Strappy uh, flees in the night stealing some of the belongings of the uh, of the squad uh, they then go to get equipped mm-hmm. by a quartermaster and discover that like they've got basically feck all you know uh, munitions or um adequate equipment at all uh, yeah and uh, around this time as well uh uh blouse uh, has polly become his man his boy so that sh- uh, she will be his batsman. Hmm? I-, I think that's the uh, that was his bat his batsman. Word they'd use for oh his batman his batman. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and uh, basically she has to be there to bring him his food. And one thing that inspires fear in her to shave him because she has never had to actually shave herself, and she's worried that she might accidentally kill him. But uh, she gets out of it time and time again. Anytime she is brought around to do that. But anyway. Uh, after Strappy has run away into the night, uh, when the band are preparing to leave, they are suddenly encountered by the uh, Dragoons, I think it is? Yeah. Uh, the Heavy Dragoons. And among them is Captain... What was his name? The Dragoon Knights. Uh, among them are, are Freya, uh, Kane, um, uh, <laughs> oh, who else? Um, Edgar. Yeah, all, uh, all the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But uh, the the head of the dragoons basically. Uh, so actually, sorry. Uh, Polly is in a tavern at the time when they come in, and not wanting to appear as a soldier, she disguises herself as a woman. So she is a woman disguised as a soldier, <laughs> now disguising herself again as a woman so that she won't be discovered as a soldier in their eyes. And the head, the captain of this group, basically makes a pass at... Not a pa- something more aggressive than a pass. Uh, basically, he's going in for... He, he's, he's planning to rape yeah. her, basically. And she knees him in the crotch. And... Her, alongside the rest of her group, managed to capture the entire uh, platoon of Dragoons, which is a a small enough group. And they have them all tied up. And while they have them tied up, we encounter another character we saw in a previous book. And who is that, Colin? That's William DeWard, who's uh, acting as a uh, war correspondent, essentially, for the Yang Fourport Times. Um, so he attempts to get an interview with them and, and through him as well and, and like fragments of the times they, they sort of glean more about the outside world and how the war is really going and that it's not going quite as uh, positively as they've been told through the official Nuganite channels but he um, and, and his uh, loyal photographer Otto Shriek take a picture of these uh, um, dragoons that have been tied up also, I, I, you might remember this better than me. Uh, it's just owing to the Christmas break and stuff, there's been a fair gap between me finishing reading this book and us recording this podcast now. So I can't remember exactly how, but essentially Jackram sort of uses the chaos of them uh, finding this enemy patrol in their own territory and capturing them and so on as sort of an excuse to re-recruit himself back into the army. Um, oh no, I, I remember it actually. What he does is he's able to threaten them because he he tells them how he's no longer in the army and basically doesn't have to play along any, you know, gentlemanly rules of war lines. And then moments after doing that, Mm. the uh, the old one-legged quartermaster is so impressed by this, he re-recruits him back in. So kind of then they they, they go on, they they leave the dragoons uh, tied up. They opt not to to kill them. They don't really have the stomach for it. Uh, So Jackram, Blouse and, and the troop... Um, move on and then later they mm. discover uh, that the one of the uh, the captain of the dragoons they tied up who's it, it's implied at the time that he gave a false name but they discover that he was actually prince heinrich himself who has yes. been like beaten up and tied up by uh, essentially uh, a bunch of uh, young women uh, and and the wars didn't notice either, but obviously Otto has taken the picture, so it circulates into times, and then people who do recognize um, uh, Prince Heinrich um, identify it, and, and it snowballs from there. And from there, uh, so at this point now, uh, the ins and outs, as this uh, band is called, they are heading towards... Um, basically the bottleneck where the war is taking place like basically the worst possible place to be but they are heading in that direction and on their trek there uh everyone kind of reveals bits and pieces from their backstory uh like who they were before they joined the army uh, of particular note i think is uh Wazer, who was um uh, she was beaten she was in the what was the name of that house that they I, were I in i think they, they refer to it uh, as like the 
the grey house or the grey building, but it's essentially, I mean, uh, like, yeah. we'll get into this in more detail later, but like as an Irish reader, I was just thinking they're in Magdalen Laundries, essentially. Um, and Yeah, that's that's pretty much what it reads as are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And basically, so she was beaten there and she has come out of this as extremely religious and we discover that she believes the Duchess is walking mm-hmm. with them on this brigade. And uh, it's it's quite unsettling for everyone else, but um, yeah, that's that's kind of the main thing. While we're there, we also discover that uh, Maledict, who it, we're still unsure at this point whether or not she's a girl or not, because Polly has discovered most. I think she has discovered everyone in the ins and outs is a girl, except for Maledict, but she's unsure yeah. of him slash her. Uh, but we discover that Maledict, who uh, ha- doesn't drink blood, but she replaced blood with coffee to sate her urges but uh, Strappy stole his coffee machine so she is kind of having a relapse and she's trying to control herself but there's this worry that she might relapse and attack one of yeah, them which yeah. is something that um, they are has them on edge and so, so the other the other members of the troop just uh, while, while we're talking about them now you, you've got uh, the troll uh, goes by Carborundum but a uh, real name Jade Um You've got yeah. the, the Igorina uh, in, instead of Igor, who it's it's sort of, she sort of explains how like Igor um, society is quite traditional as well, and that she doesn't get the opportunity she'd like, um, uh, in, you know, in terms of doing what Igors do and cutting people up and sewing them back together and so on. We have Tonker and Lofty, uh, who were also in the um, the the Magdalen Laundries, uh, quasi Magdalen Laundries. Uh, and who are essentially uh, they're they're a couple basically. There is an interesting bit when um, I think uh, Polly discovers Lofty is a girl first, and then assumes that she oh. signed up to be with her boyfriend Tonker, and then you find out Tonker's also a girl. And Polly's going, like, "Oh, that means." Um, but yeah, they're essentially like they um, you know, uh, suffered awful treatment uh, in the the um laundries as well uh tonker kind of reacted by being quite like aggressive and bullish lofty is a lot more introverted but we later discover it's a pyromaniac and um yes <laughs> oh no sorry sorry it's uh yeah yeah it's lofty and it's shufty is the other one who is pregnant and she was pregnant on a one night stand with a soldier who she's nominally gone off to to find but it, it's it's sort of played <sighs> up as to like how left ambiguous to how much she really believes she can because her description of the soldier is like so vague and open-ended that you know polly's kind of thinking well how how can you expect to find this person but also you know do you even want to at this stage is is sign it's you know it's, it's left unsaid but the impression we get is is she really looking for the father of the child or is she signing up because being an unmarried mother in Borogravia is well, you know, we, we've seen through uh, Lofty and Wazer and Tonker, like the kind of uh, treatment unmarried mothers could could expect in that society. Um, so to get deeper into enemy territory, they run afoul of other Slovenian regiments and are able to uh, defeat them. Kind of Blouse proves his noose here by stealing their... Um, I think it's, it's like, a, like a Morse code or a flag signaling system to send false signals to the enemies. But true... Uh, interrogating the captured enemy soldiers they again uh, they find out that the the fellow they initially captured was prince heinrich and how annoyed he is for the whole thing they also find out just how badly the war is going um 
uh, for them. They run into William DeWard again, and I think it's through him they basically find out that their little troop is essentially the last non-captured, uh, you know, Borogravian um, patrol in their entire military. So they head to this fortress where the rest of them are captured, uh, and they're very much divided about what to do there uh, as to, you know, whether to it's, it's hopeless to try and um, uh, take them on or wh whether they can do anything. Blaus uh, resolves to go in disguised as a woman. Um, throughout, throughout the book, too, Polly is kind of getting sort of mentorship from, from Jackram in, like, how to deal with offi these officers who are nominally in charge, but are, you know, are from the upper classes and often, like, you know, haven't had much very military experience compared to the people under them. Uh, so, you know, sort of how to get them to do what you want while convincing them that it's actually what they want. So Polly's trying to plant this yeah. idea with Blouse that they would sneak in disguised as women. <laughs> and then Blouse... Blouse likes this idea, but thinks he's the only one who can because all of the rest of them are too <laughs> laddish. And it, it's quite funny because it's like they've always obviously been playing up this sense of laddishness because they're all paranoid that people won't believe they're men and now it's kind of worked too well. So uh, Blouse goes in and they all assume he's he's fucked because his um, portrayal of a woman is it's very panto. Like he's... He's talking about his experience yeah. acting at school, and it's very much just like this all boys school with this, you know, like theatre tradition. It's very pantomime, widow twanky kind of uh, stuff. So then, yeah. what happens? So after, uh, so after a very short period of time, when they decide believe that uh, Blouse has probably just been captured, they real they feel that they have to go in after him and try it for themselves. Jack Rum refuses to go in as well, believing it to be a suicide mission. Uh, I think. Wait, is that this point? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, so he says that he's going to go in the other way and to give him a signal, some kind of signal for when he should charge in. So they they go in uh, and they, sure enough, uh, first they seem to be captured, but uh, they said uh, uh, because. They go in and the, the guards at the door are like, oh, how stupid do you think we are? We know, obviously, that you're soldiers. And I believe it is... Is it Wazer? Or... One of the girls, anyway, shows that she is a woman. She basically opens her <laughs> yeah. uh, dress to say, look, look, I'm a woman. Don't you feel ashamed of yourself now? And um, Which actually is a very interesting moment, which we'll come back to later, where uh, they're kind of saying, like, oh, like you're such a brutish person like how dare you uh even look at me this way and they use that uh against them so to gain access uh so the, the fear that they might come off as some kind of depraved uh creep mm -hmm. basically keeps them away so they infiltrate the fortress to a certain extent and if i recall correctly they bump into betty which is Blouse's pseudonym while they're in there. And they get brought down to the kitchens where uh, all the other washerwomen show that they know straight away that they're all women and they know that Betty's a woman. Well, no, so no, they, so they, know, they know Blouse isn't a woman, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, yes. But it's also woman, implied yeah. that he has fooled the um, the soldiers, the, the the washerwomen there, who who yeah. are all, it's all said, like Borogravian washerwomen who've kind of been coerced into... Uh, working for the enemy, as it were. Um, they, they know Blouse is really a man. Uh, the Slovenian soldiers don't, but 
Blouse is kind of uh, he's well, he says he's sort of playing the long game and you know figuring out a way to uh, free everyone and so forth. Um, but like Polly's sort of frustrated with uh, the idea that he's not going to get anything done, even if he has managed to avoid detection while he's there. Um, so they then end up they end up going down to the crypts uh, with um, yeah. with some Slovenian troops. They they overpowered them in a lift. Um, then in the crypts, uh, Wazer is possessed by the Duchess and sort of urges all of the dead Borogravian troops to rise from their their graves. Um, they hmm. then go to the uh, jail cells and let out the the Borogravian troops who are arrested there. Um, mm. And the, those troops begin uh, basically overpowering their their captors and retaking the fortress and so on. Yes, and uh, shortly afterwards, uh, you're going to have to remind me on this now because it's been so long since I've read it. They get discovered around this point, but I forget how. Um, um I think Blouse discovers them. No, first. no. Well, it's it's that. Uh, Polly Polly admits they they're women, um, which then causes this big problem. Even though that they've freed the Borgravian troops, the Borgravian troops kind of don't want to uh, sort of admit because of the the ideology that um, Borgravia runs on. The, the Borgravian troops don't want to admit that you know women could have played such a big role in uh, warfare yes, to give other right, women yeah. ideas so in the midst of this conflict within the fortress they sort of have this impromptu military trial with the Borgravian High Command where they're sort of urging Polly and the rest of the troop to arrive at this compromise where they will admit they're women but they'll kind of like they'll downplay their role in what they've done you know they'll uh, act as if you know it's a very minor thing or they were uh, you know or it was mainly down to blouse the man who uh, um, urged him to do this uh, then in the middle of this trial uh, Jack Rum convinces uh, a lot of the the, tr the people in the trial to leave uh, except a certain few members of the high command he then reveals all of these members of the high command are actually also women who went off the war in similar mm. circumstances years ago and have kind of managed to evade detection and and rise throughout the ranks uh and he he uses this to um to sort of to try to i suppose to blackmail them into giving a, a better fate for for Polly and her gang in the midst of this Wazer who's on the point of death after the scene in the crypts, is then possessed by the Duchess again and orders all of the generals to basically give up the war, um, give up Nogan, return home. Uh, so they, on, on the back of that, they end up kind of uh, reaching, a, a, I suppose, like a peace agreement with uh, the alliance. Um, Vimes uh, meets with, with, with Polly and I, I think it's a, Maledict, or it's one of the others as well. Maledict yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, and he's kind of like, he's all for this, and he's basically going to bully the other um, members of the Alliance into accepting this this peace agreement. Uh, Polly then goes up to Jackram and reveals that she knows that Jackram is also actually a woman, 
and Jackram um, tells her about uh, how, how she initially came to war uh, with a, uh, a boyfriend of hers who was signed up and he was a much kind of smaller, meeker, uh, weaker person than she was. So she went there to protect him. He ended up dying. She stayed in. Um, she says she had a, had a son uh, and the, the son is like he, he's off somewhere. He owns an inn. Uh, but she doesn't want to go to him because she's kind of embarrassed about like in the same way that uh, we see that during the trial when Polly and her troop reveal themselves as women who have disguised themselves as men and, and basically saved Borogravia, they're still kind of treated like, like an embarrassment that people don't really know what to feel about them. So Jackram sort of feels the same mm. way that even where he'd go to his son and say, oh, I'm actually your mother and this whole time I've had to pretend like... Like if the son would be like, you know, so I've got this L one around, but it's really a man. So Polly kind of uh, mm. suggests the idea to Jackram to basically go back and pretend to be the son's father, since he never knew either of his parents really, uh, and that this will give him yeah. a more, I suppose, like solid status within that family. Yeah, and it, it's kind of implied Jackram does so. He sends her a picture later. We then cut ahead to uh, the end, like like uh, a while later. Uh, Polly and um, Shufti uh, are um, uh, back at the inn with Polly's brother. Sorry, uh, just before that happens, um, uh, Polly and Maledict are sent to negotiate the truce with uh, Vimes uh, for the war. And uh, around this point, Maledict also reveals that she too is a woman, which almost has no revelation whatsoever. Like uh, Polly's barely even mm-hmm. listening when this is revealed because it's just become such a casual thing at this point in the book for all of the soldiers basically to be women. Um, when Polly meets with a lot of the Ankh-Morpork leaders, uh, she basically refuses uh, the truce. Uh but and like Vimes is very amused by this entire thing and he takes her aside to kind of talk to her privately seeing as he's the one who generally has the power in this uh point the outcome of all this basically means that um uh let's see what was it that Ang Morpork essentially uh is willing to give Borogravia a bit of a pass as long as things kind of go back a bit more quietly and they stop uh, tearing down the class towers, which I don't... The the troops are kind of... Because their eyes have been opened to... They're they're less narrow-minded now than they were at the start of the book. They're kind of realizing that the religion they were following was a little bit broken, so they do agree with this. Um, Other changes are made to the Borgravian army. Uh, Women are now allowed to join uh, after the entire fiasco. Uh, let's see and at that point I think that's when everyone kind of splits up and goes their own separate ways and yeah Shufti as you said she goes back with Polly to the tavern that she yeah, works she, at she rears and... her, um, her son with, with like Polly's back there with her brother and, and her father it's also there's a small scene too where Shufti they arrange to like they go through all of the troops who are in the fortress to find the father of her child and and they find a guy it was yeah. like it could be him, but it's clear he's like not very uh, committed or interested, but would sort of be interested because the in in reward for Shufti uh, being part of the troop that freeds all of these Borogravian uh, higher ups, they're going to give her a kind of like sum of money to 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 raise her son, and he's sort of more interested in that. So she, or she, she basically admit she says 
that isn't like he isn't the father, you know. Uh, no, I obviously, you know, the father must have died somewhere. I'll have to write to tell myself. But then she goes up and like, you know, gives your man a box for uh, treating her so badly in the first place. <laughs> uh, it was a lovely bit. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, Tonker and we Lofty are, are off. They're oh. kind of like like high, highwaymen or highwaywomen um, now. Mm. Uh, and so so they're back at the they're back at the inn, um, and then the war is breaking out again and and the book ends so basically polly going up to sort of sign up for the war to make sure kind of like i suppose like things go right this time or to you know like like intervene but she dresses in a kind of like feminine uh, or feminized military gear so it's clear she is a woman uh she meets up with maledict Mm. and like in the closing scene they meet two uh, young soldiers who they twig as women pretending to be men and give them advice on how to do that yeah. but also their presence is sort of like understanding the need of how to do that but also un- undermining the necessity of, of doing it you know um, so, so th- yeah, that's what yeah. it ends it's sort of come full circle in that there's war breaking out again and she's going back to war but it's sort of different this time in how open she can be about her identity and how I suppose she's she's got a more more confidence about uh, what she wants to do and what she's going to do in the war than this rather desperate hope of of finding her brother the first time. So uh, there hmm. there it ends. Yeah. So um, I guess there's there's no getting around this anyway. I think the main thing that we have to say about this one is that this is very much a feminist text. You know, um, the, I I don't know about you, but it's I found it impossible not to like not not in this kind of like absolutely impossible to read this in any other way except in a feminist way. And while it is a feminist feminist text, I'm not sure if you'd agree with this, but I'd say while it is a feminist text, it's not necessarily a revolutionary one. Would you agree with that? Uh, I mean, it's a very flexible word, revolutionary, uh, in this context. Yeah, I mean, I. I think so. I think there are, there's odd, I suppose there's odd bits where it uh, kind of undermines its message, as it were, sort of tries to have its cake and eat it. Um, I mean, Mm. I do think practice writing in general sort of like tends to draw shy of presenting a situation where there's been like, you know, a complete revolution and resolution of the social problems he depicts yeah. because he seems to be a bit suspicious of the idea that you can kind of solve them so sweepingly in general uh, like we've had discussed mm. before about whether he's successful like the complexity of, of the, the depicts in Nightwatch is like a magnificent kind of high point to this uh, whereas something like say Interesting Times where he kind of seems to thumb his nose at the idea of revolution but also like not re like the the alternative is just so like bizarre and uh, <laughs> kind of you know like off the wall and like uh, don't don't get your own people to rise up. Hope some barbarian old man take you over instead. <laughs> makes for so, makes yeah. for sort of a garbled um, uh, uh, idea um, presented in a book. What do, what do, why do you think this one um, kind of it draws shy of being revolutionary? Well, uh, I'm not sure. I see. The thing is, I feel like the main thing that he's championing here 
is the idea that um, you know it's it's basically in the simplest terms possible I think he just kind of seems the main message he seems to be getting across is oh women can do anything that men can and I I mean there are obviously he has other things to say but like this is the point that he's really trying to hammer home and I guess I'm just looking at this in broad strokes but I'm per- like listen I'm sure, I'm sure there's like lots of like niggly things that we'll, we'll figure out uh, while we're discussing it here I mean my, my gut instinct more than anything else is that there's nothing here I feel that isn't said in many other books before but I don't know what, what, what do you sorry, think sorry, do you mean many other Discworld books or, or just many other books in general oh many many other like uh, f- feminist feminist texts um yeah, I would agree with you, but at the same time, I think that would be a like a harsh criticism in general of like you know it's it's hard to expect anything wholly new in in, in any book. Mm. Um, I think uh, for me the the strangest is that like it it's sort of um, I don't want to get too teary heavy here because I'm, I'm sure some of our, our our listeners are less interested in this kind of stuff than we are. But it kind of reminded me of that whole like Judith Butler. Uh, the feminist theorists looking at drag and how it deconstructs um, these uh, mm. gender qualities that are presented to us or have been presented to us for many many years as being like the natural way for women to behave or for men to behave and so on as something like drag deconstructs yeah. them by showing say you have a, a man dressed up as a woman and he's kind of like displaying these qualities that were apparently the natural predilection of women but he's also doing it in a kind of heightened way that shows that it's a performance in the first place you know so i i think like mm. It's, it does that well in that you have them when they're they're dressed up as boys, they're kind of trying to act in this very laddish way, you know, like all like telling dirty jokes to one another and, um, uh, you know, like really openly farting and picking their noses. And as I said, you do have that. Uh, <laughs> it kind of reaches its apex with like it, that it's fooled blouse to the point where he can't believe they could effectively disguise themselves as women, you know, even though what they're doing yeah. is is a performance. But it also kind of falls back on certain, like, I suppose, like, gender associations or stereotypes as being, I don't know, like, natural or true. Like, the bit where how um, how uh, Polly discovers that uh, Shufti is actually a woman, that she's so good at cooking and that she doesn't swear, you know? Uh she like she drops yeah, something yeah. when she's cooking and she says sugar and she's like, ah, oh, no. And on the one hand, you're like, well, like, in the that makes sense in the uh, harsh uh, repressive society that Borogravia is that like from Polly's point of view as a Borogravian she's essentially like no Borogravian woman would swear and you're like yeah well you know mm. from what we see in the book that's probably true but there, there is kind of like throughout there are these jokes about like you know just kind of tossed off about like oh women are really like this men are really like that that kind of like fly in the face of the idea mm. that the book is picking that apart in other places yeah, and just um, to clarify one thing that, like, now, when I said that this is my gut feeling, like, so I felt that, like, it wasn't revolutionary. As I said, this is the gut feeling I had, but now I'm just, like, trying to pick apart, like, as, as you're saying. And you are right, there are, like, um, the idea of gender roles is explored very, very well here. And I think uh, it's really, there's a really good moment. The moment where they all disguise themselves as washerwomen, so where they're girls disguised as soldiers, disguised as washerwomen. That's a really good point because all of them find themselves in a lot of difficulty 
trying to act like yeah. women. So that's that's a wonderful point where so like they're women acting like men and they slowly get comfortable with the idea of acting like men. But then when they need to act like women, they find that they can't just revert back to like the way they used to be because they realize that it is, as you said, it's a performance. And the fact that um, that does hi- that is highlighted at that point and again, overtly highlighted by the fact that uh, Blouse slash Betty is putting on what is. <laughs> a very old school fantasy version yeah. of drag kind of RuPaul's Drag Race kind of thing or whatever you want to call it um, but it's it's also funny that like shortly afterwards like when early on in the book when Polly is still grappling with all the things that she has to do to appear like a man she when she has to pretend to be a woman again when the dragoons infiltrate the tavern she has a moment where she, in her head, she says, wow, it's actually really easy switching between a boy and mm-hmm. a girl once she's done it before. But, like, in this case, it's not performative. It's just a case of, like, who she is. Because, like, she just needs to be herself for him to see, oh, yeah, that's a girl. Whereas when she's infiltrating the washerwomen, or as washerwomen, they're, you know, they're kind of trying to emphasize their own genders in order to become invisible yeah. which is weird they're, they're almost being louder with their gender to become more well invisible. i think it's also that when, when she's uh disguised as a boy like the things she's doing are then expanding what she is you know what i mean like she does new things whether it's like mm. you know uh the kind of like soldierly stuff of you know setting up camp and uh shaving and, and fighting with others and so on so like that is also a part of her that's a part of her experience so when she goes back to uh quote unquote pretending to be a woman in the the scene with the dragoons and, and as washerwomen she suddenly has to suppress these new things she's learned and experienced that nominally are boys stuff but that are also now inherently part of her experience because she's done it you know yeah um, so both to, even though like when she's uh, in the scene with the dragoons even though she's kind of reverting to her apparently natural self and being a barmaid again um it, it is also a performance because it means that the, the stuff she's been doing the last few days that has become quite nat- you know quite natural to her and uh, she's developed competen- competencies for she then has to suppress it's it's interesting that like all these uh yeah like it's an exploration of identity and it's it's very interesting that all the qualities that are typically associated with one gender or the other like she doesn't quite fall into either category and what i think is one thing that i thought was really interesting was the hair like when she cuts her hair and she keeps it with her but like she makes a point of saying that like it wasn't like a big dramatic act it was quite easy to do just cut off her hair it wasn't something she thought to thought too heavily on but she also keeps it so it's not like a case of she's abandoning. Like if if you look at the uh, the lock of hair that she keeps, if you kind of look at that as like an emblem of her femininity, like it's not that she's just kind of like disregarding it. Uh, but by the same token, like she's cut it off, but she kind of has it aside at the same time. You know, like so she's identifying with it, but it's not her anymore. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Although I, I I also saw that as part of like. Um... It's a hard thing to assess because all like all the soldiers we meet in that troop, with the ex- uh, exception of Blouse, who's an officer, are turned out to be women. But I also saw it as part of a thing of like in general, you know, male, female, or, or anything else. When, when you're in a military situation, you have to sacrifice so much of your individuality anyway. You know, you kind of like nowadays mm. you, you go into the army and you have to have like the you know regulation hair length and so on, and you're all wearing the same uniform and like her keeping her uh, 
her her ringlets wasn't just a preservation of her, her femininity, but it was also just a preservation of like I'm someone beyond this war, you know, like I I I, I yeah. have a past and I have a future and like I'm you know I'm not just a uniform I'm wearing. For, for me, the most interesting part about the the gender matters of this book is how it deals with internalized misogyny, like the idea of women in a patriarchal system then internalizing that system to the extent that they become tools of furthering that misogyny, you know, whether because it gives them power over other women or because it gives them a sense of stability uh, or out of fear or whatever. Like, I, I think that's the fascinating part. Like, obviously, most clearly it's with the, the moment when Jackram reveals that a huge proportion of the Borgravian High Command uh, are women. Um, and then it mm. goes from like if you were kind of reading this book, thinking, "Oh, this is this is painting a very uh, one note picture of like, oh, war is bad because these tick men who are running things, you know, and if only women ran the world, um, uh, kind of thing." Like it then takes away from that one. It's like, "Oh, look, women are running things in Borogravia, and they're just as bad as the men who preceded them," um, because they're. Mm operating within this very narrow system and don't have i don't know whether you want to call it like the compassion or the imagination or the courage to to operate outside of it uh so like that is that's fascinating and the fact that they are trying to deal with enforcing this uh this understandable or um a, a accommodatable role for Polly and her troop when it's kind of their uh, the fact the, their status as women has been outed. You know, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Like everyone knows, they're women, and that these mm. women uh, kidnapped Prince Heinrich and have freed the Borgravian High Command, and they're thinking like rather than just <laughs> the straightforward thing and be like, fantastic, well done. Uh, you know, here's a medal. They've like, okay, we've got to fit this in the. Uh, Borgravian society and Borgravian gender roles. They're kind of trying to accommodate them in this picture of like, oh, brave peasant women helping out, you know, uh, freeing loyal officers who then done the, the hard part. Um, and, yeah. and, and then the further, you, you also have that wonderful bit when, um, I can't remember, it's, it's, it's just before they go into the fort. And I think it's, it's a Jackram is singing a song, like a, a folk song. And Polly kind of like Sarkley says about like, oh, this is going to end up with her sleeping with your man or, or you know, whatever. And uh, they all do. Um, so there's this notion that like you have this culture and tradition in uh, the army and perhaps in Borgravian society in general of having all these like uh, these folk songs and these elements of cultures that give this message of like the transgressive woman who gets punished. You know, like she ends up sleeping with someone she shouldn't and she uh, she gets punished for it. So you see how these ideas are formed. But then further to that, you have like some of the troop like Tonker and, uh, and I think like, you know, Lofty as well um, saying about the girl in a song about how foolish she is that she should just fight back against the uh, the the. Uh, Bella, who's uh, I can't remember whether he's sexually assaulting her in the the song or, or whatever it is, but that they have this lack of patience and lack of sympathy with the, you know this fictional woman presented to them who's suffering under a misogynistic system. You know, instead they're just sort of like, oh, just be be more sensible or be braver. You know, their kind of their status in transgressing the the boundaries of. of uh, set for women in Borgravian society hasn't given them any extra 
compassion or, or patience with, with their uh, fellow women being punished. Instead, it's just kind of giving them this sense of exception of like, oh, we're the, you know, the smart ones who aren't like those other fools who are letting themselves get punished. And that that element of it, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Um, mm. it, it, I don't want to get too deeply into this, but like... Uh, what struck me about it is, I suppose, like these these debates about about you know about gender, about like kind of uh, sexuality, uh, race, national identity. All there, there's so much more, I suppose, like in the uh, ether of of pop culture than they would have been previously. You know, kind of de- debated online and so on. Uh, they're not always, perhaps, debated with. Um, in fact, you might even say rarely debated with you nuance and, and, and patience and, and open-mindedness uh, you know not to say that a lot of good hasn't come of these things being uh, discussed a lot more openly than, than they were before but that side of it like that side of the um, the person who is really broadly speaking a member of the oppressed group then buying into the oppressing structures or furthering them in some ways and why they do that and why they do that being something kind of like complex and understandable but also frustrating i think is something that is like really missing from so many of these discussions when they happen uh you know say online now like on twitter or whatever uh so like that part of it was a a, a revelation and a a real um i don't know delight is probably too flighty a word but um it was invigorating to read about i suppose yeah okay yeah you definitely have a fair point there do you know what I found uh, really frustrating initially, but over time I kind of came around to it and realized it might have been uh, something different than what I initially read into was uh, the way things end with uh, Jade. How uh, while she's going to, um, she, she goes with Maledict and Polly to negotiate the truce. And while she's doing that, uh, a rock is thrown at her from another troll. And initially... Uh, Polly and Maledict like are furious and like uh, no it was just, I think Polly is furious initially and starts to yell at him but then Maledict stops her and says oh no you don't understand this is part of like troll mating rituals or something and the way it ends up anyway is Jade and this troll basically go off together mm-hmm. and that's just the end of her story and initially that annoyed me a lot because I thought that's a very simplistic way to end that and I found it like just wondering like why why did that happen but i think what that might have been and maybe you can chime in on this as well is a kind of pointed argument on um race and gender the mix of the two like you know the way um throughout uh the different waves of feminism we often get like you know differences between say yeah say second third or fourth wave feminism but then you also have like uh african-american feminism or like feminism with coupled with different religions and how one wave of feminism doesn't necessarily take this into account. Yeah, yeah. Well, broadly and, speaking, that was the kind of I suppose the criticism of second wave feminism was that it wasn't that it was all about like kind of white Western, uh, largely like you know middle yeah. class or, or up uh, women that didn't take into account the yeah experiences of, of women in other cultures or situations. Yeah, I I hadn't thought of that um, at all. To be honest, I, I did think she was a little underwritten, Jade. But I mean, that's I think that's a really good point. Is that yeah, it's showing the the limits for even though. Polly can relate and sympathize with Jade as a you know woman going disguising as a man to go off to war. There are going to be limits to her understanding because Jade comes from a, is a different species, comes comes from a completely different culture, and what might seem like 
unsatisfactory to Polly is actually going to be quite, you know, uh, fulfilling or even empowering for Jade. Um, it it kind of reminds me of, of that bit in a, um, is it it's the fifth elephant where Cheery is going to the dwarf thing and she's wearing her normal dwarf mail and, and Vime's like, you don't have to. And she goes, oh, yeah, but yeah. I want to, you know. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, I think, I mean, I presume that's what it is. I mean, as you said, it is a little frustrating initially how Jade was quite underwritten. Um, she does have one line which I thought was really good and definitely underlines this as a feminist text is where she's describing like how she decided to try and get recruited and at one point she said um, the thing is I'm naturally craggy <laughs> that was great <laughs> that was a lovely yeah. little line but as I said she's quite underwritten but maybe that is just a very pointed um, way of Terry Pratchett saying listen I can't I can't accommodate every aspect of feminism in this book there's no way especially coming from his perspective as both as a man but also a uh, middle class white man so like he there's no way that he can like try and accommodate all these things and maybe this is just an acknowledgement of that just saying listen i i know that whatever my views are going to be on this i i can't I probably can't do them justice, so it's just an acknowledgement of that i think that's probably what that is yeah but, yeah and you know in some ways this is like um uh, it's like like compared to other disc world books it seems smaller and you just have the one main character in Polly, you know rather than like a big cast like um uh well i mean you do have a cast but say you read a witch's book and you'll uh ping pong between like agnes mcgrath nanny granny you read the watch book you have like several of the, here like you know we're with Polly all the time in some ways it's a small book in other ways it's a very big one because you have all these different stories of the the troop and they've all sort of they all um he does a good job of kind of giving them their own motivations you know even they're united in what they're doing they'll have disparate motivations and feelings and some of it perhaps might come across as uh yeah like like oh i wish we could see more of horror but uh you can understand like i think that what's having talked about it what we the little we see of of jade and the food for todd it provides us with i think is better than some of the other stuff that's dealt with briefly but doesn't like the one that stuck out to me is when Maledict is getting his well, horror rider withdrawal symptoms from coffee and she starts getting like these flash sideways to essentially Vietnam. Like, I, yeah, I, I didn't like it because I, I was just like, this feels so shoehorned in. You know, it's like he's writing this war book and the feel we're getting for it is kind of Napoleonic, uh, kind of World War One. But um, when exactly was this written? 2003 so maybe the war in iraq is is kind of like a, like on his mind so it's like he wants to you know i i want to play with more war tropes and of course vietnam is one of the most heavily documented wars in terms of like you know cinematic representations and so on so he finds this way to do it but it just feels so odd like this whole concept of flash sideways we have auto there to explain it and and to me it's just it's just too big of a concept to come up with for the sake of a joke that never really goes anywhere, you know? Um, and, and and also, so to me, more like undermines the kind of horror of war stuff because it's just like, I don't know, like I, I, I didn't like it. I found it kind of like frustrating and uh, underwritten. And uh, and in general, that like flash sideways concept, I was like, I'd love to see that in a book where he has the time and space to actually go into this in detail. But, you know, when he doesn't, it's just, yeah, uh, yeah it seems really... Uh, incongruous and anomalous with the um 
with the other stuff here. Yeah, I guess I, I see what you mean. Yeah, it would be a lot better if it if it was in a, if it was more focused in a book where you had the space to expand upon it. Um, I just enjoyed it for what it was. I didn't really mm-hmm. think too much into it. But uh, hey, listen, we'll, we'll yeah. disagree on that one. Um, what was I going? I was, I had a point there now that I was going to talk about. What one thing I thought that was really interesting was um, the role that Polly takes with. Uh, blouse in that she kind you know as you said when uh, Jack Rome is kind of grooming her a little bit and like teaching her how to um, you know how to deal with high ranking officers and how to implant ideas into their head and make them think that mm-hmm. they were the ones who came up with it and the whole idea that comes out of it it seems like she's almost like a mother to this spoiled child and like she's trying to use these weird like psychological mind games to kind of um, get him to do what uh, what she wants him to do, uh, because like she's literally like she's feeding him, she's cleaning him, like um, so she is placed in the role of a mother, but she's not happy about it, which again is uh, an interesting concept because like you know the traditional. Um, view of women like before uh feminism was even a concept is that they are just kind of walking wombs designed to be mothers and nothing else and then where you have her placed into that role but she's like doing it out of necessity she's like not necessarily rebelling against it but twisting it to suit her own uh needs uh i don't know i, I thought that was uh kind of interesting as well yeah yeah again um, it's shown i suppose like in, in the how power works in these seemingly really autocratic uh, patriarchal societies isn't always as straightforward as it seems. You know, you have these figures that like, like Polly or Jackram that are placed close to those like uh, who are nominally in command, like Blouse is upper class and, and male and so on, who actually wield a lot of what you might call soft power or, or influence over them and, and how they can use that. Um, I find the whole relationship with, like, the kind of, I suppose, the Polly Blouse Jackram triangle one of the most fascinating and, like, best parts of this book. Yeah. Like, I, I think, first of all, Jackram and Strappy, right? When you're introduced to them, you're thinking, oh, it's another Cola Nobby analog. Big, bluff, fat mm. sergeant, tiny little Sarky Corporal. Uh, and we've seen that in. Um, Amazing Morris, you know, among other places we saw like a kind of Cola Nobby parallel pop up. And I think that's really well done. I'll, I'll get to this a little later when we're talking about uh, Vimes and Angua about like basically with any Discworld book, like how standalone it is versus how much you your experience is improved by reading other ones and, and how unnecessary that is. But I think here having come across that so often in the past, and obviously having come across Colin Nobby itself, you're sort of almost consciously or semi-consciously, if you're reading it for the first time, expecting certain things of Jackram and Strappy, and then they go completely against that. Like, Strappy is the worst version of Nobby. Like, all the things people joke about about Nobby, about him stealing, about him being cowardly, kind of selling his mates out, comes to the fore in Strappy in this, like, really nasty, high-stakes way. You know, like, the way he bullies Wazzer, and then the notion of him, like, the idea of him fleeing from the front in the way that they have, like, talk about, like, Nobby going at the battlefields after it was over and looting corpses. Like, the the stakes are set in such a way here where that feels absolutely repugnant rather than a joke, you know? 
and then Jackram, mm. who you imagine as this kind of like uh, bluff, uh, yeah, colonesque figure, is quickly depicted as much more shrewd um, than uh, any colon figure would. And then with Jackram and Blouse, you're kind of sorting them into like, okay, it's it's almost like Vimes and Rust, but less openly antagonistic. Like, uh, um, like like mm. Blouse is a sort of you know, uh, no nothing. Like he's kind of crossing like Varence and Rusk. He's like well-meaning but obnoxious and ineffective, uh, and because of his bert, he's in this position. And you have uh, like a figure of um, uh, Jackram alongside him, who's going to have to uh, basically go between the lines of, of of the power structure to kind of enforce some sort of sense. But that becomes much more ambiguous when we have moments like when, when they capture that uh, Slovenian soldier and Ru- and uh, Rust is also come Rust, uh, Blaus is treating him kind of gentlemanly uh, in this way that seems sort mm. of ludicrous but then you have Jackram kill the guy in cold blood and it's sort of implied that he's kind of like manipulated the situation and that he knew your man was going to try and escape and uh, make a play for one of the soldiers and then he get the opportunity to kill him and Polly's thinking of how cold and rootless that is because she's thinking like he could have killed one of us you know before uh, Jackram mm. and how Jackram has manipulated this situation and he suddenly becomes this much more morally ambiguous figure who's sort of bloodthirsty and suddenly Blau- the, like the hypocrisy and uh, ineffectiveness of Blouse's gentlemanly war suddenly you begin to see a sort of point to that even as, as silly as it is you're like oh well this does act as a kind of restraining bolt on, on people to conduct themselves with like some sense of humanity in, in war compared to like Jackram's uh, apparent pragmatism where he's like ah oh, the Ruperts they don't know anything I know what war is really like like suddenly he starts to feel like he's like okay yeah that is pragmatic but it's also your way of justifying how like bloodthirsty and rootless you, you know you are like that you can kind of do anything in these war situations because you sort of say oh that's just how war goes if you try to be any nicer you're just a fool um like I think all of that's absolutely fascinating. Um, like as it went on, yeah. Like particularly, it, it's odd. As I said, I, I read this book so long ago, and I, I'm sure you've had this experience before with like a book you haven't read for years and years, where there are certain bits of it you remember very clearly, and there are other bits that you completely forgot about. Mm. So in this, I remembered the big twist at the end. You know, um, oh, like what else uh, stuck out to me. Uh, yeah, I remember the twist at the end. I remember Wazer's bit being possessed by the, the Duchess. And I remembered Blouse just in this more one-dimensional kind of role. But I think he's oh, I think he's really fascinating as a character. The part where they capture Prince Heinrich, and then he gets really sarky with him, and he's like, I know your sort, you're a bully. And you really get this feeling of, like, you're instantly seeing this unspoken background of Blouse where he's grown up with these much more macho guys and he's been pushed around and now the shoe is on the other foot uh, and kind of he's getting to wield power over that. And it's also, on the one hand, you feel good for him, but on the other hand, you're also like, oh, this is sort of dangerous. Like, he feels like a a less um, reliable uh, officer when he's uh, so eager to do this. And then you, you have the bit where... They, they get the signaling equipment of the Slovenian army, and he's actually uh, more tactical than Jackram there, where he's like, we can use this to, you know, convince them to send them false messages. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think he's he's fascinating. And there's a great, great line where I, I may have underlined it. Where um, so, so having seen these bits where he's like, both on the one hand, like completely removed from what we might call real life, uh, and sort of like uh, up his own arse with gentlemanliness and, and faux intellectualism, and yet at the same hand, like actually quite intelligent and driven. Uh, I think it's summed up very well by when he goes in. Uh, to the fortress, which is on the one hand, he's utterly deluded in not real in uh, not realizing that Polly and the others are women, but on the other hand, what he does works perfectly. Like he's able to to get in there, <laughs> um, and and when Polly's talking to him, she has some line about him being a certain kind of stupid in the way that very educated or very intelligent people are, and as as like I, I don't know, it really resounded with me, like that feeling of like you have these qualifications and you're kind of regarded as like intellectual by others, but there are certain situations in which you feel utterly effective and incompetent. Um, and, and who are kind of realizing that, uh, yeah, struck a chord with me. One, one bit I thought was a pity was when you have the courtroom scene where they all reveal that all the high commander women that, um, you know, uh, like Polly and other women, Jack Ramas, all of the, well, we, as we later infer, with the, all of the men to leave. You know, you don't quite know at the time. And then later we have a line from Blouse that kind of makes you realize, oh, he was in the courtroom the whole time. So he's just been, you know, he's the only actual man there that knows all of these, all of his commanding officers are actually women. And I feel like, like the Jackram so masterfully stage manages that whole scene. He could have asked Blouse to leave if he wanted to, and he didn't. And I kind of feel like more should be made of the fact that is this this like is Jackram just trying to throw the cat among the pigeons by like like not only do I know I'm letting this fellow know as well, or is it a sort of weird sign of respect for Blouse that he's kind of like you know after all we've been through you deserve to notice as well, but not it's not nothing's <clears throat> really made of it like as I said you you only realise that Blouse is in the room when I think, like, shortly, like, at, at the end of that scene, Polly says something and Blouse replies, and, you know, I was reading, I think, oh, oh, Blouse is there too, but you don't see Blouse reacting to the revelation of his commanding officer's actual gender, what that does to his view of women and his view of, um, uh, you know, Bargravian society in general. I think that's a pity that we, we don't yeah, don't see it. But I think overall, like, he's an absolutely fascinating character. Jackram's a fascinating character. The relationship between them two and how we see it through Polly and how it evolves through Polly's eyes is like a high point of this book for me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, uh, Blouse is definitely one of the best written characters in this. And yeah, there is definitely a very interesting dichotomy between him and Jack Rome in particular. Because, you know, as we talked about before, Jack Rome is really interesting because as we discover, uh, she is in fact a mm -hmm. woman. But she does not conform in any way whatsoever to the typical traits of uh, femininity. And then with Blouse, even even Blouse's name is like, you know, gearing us up to make him think of someone who is in no way masculine whatsoever. And it's actually it's nice that um, he says early on that he wants to be attributed to like some kind of great feat because then your name might be attributed to like a piece of clothing or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hopefully this will happen to me as well. So like in this particular world, you know, the blouse isn't something that has even been named yet. So like, yeah, his name, 
in the world isn't perceived as something particularly effeminate but to us obviously it is because we're reading it it's, it's a blouse like you couldn't think of like a girlier mm. name but um and it's funny because all the traits typically assigned to masculinity he doesn't quite if he does conform he doesn't conform to them but he might try to mm-hmm. like uh he mentions how he's not able to grow a good beard which would be something typically assigned to you know uh masculinity uh, he makes a big show about wanting to eat the typical soldier slop or whatever it is, even though the rest of the soldiers are able to get better food and like they can eat whatever. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to eat this stuff what all the guys eat because that's what I do, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that like uh, the, the relationship there and just like his, his role in the entire thing, like he doesn't conform to masculinity and you know, best of all, like, he is one of the better men in the entire book. Like, you know, all the men that we come across who do conform to masculinity are kind of perceived as these, like, you know, extremely backwards, like, you know, uh, misogynistic bastards. (laughs) But, like, he doesn't, because he doesn't conform to that, and as you said, like, you know, Jackram respects him, and and Jackram is a great character, obviously, and, like, he's very pragmatic, um, even if that is a little bit confused uh, throughout the book, but you can see respect the respect that he has for Blouse. He might not be the stereotypical man, and it's emphasizing this that not only is that okay, that can be a very, very like great quality to have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's good. That's and that's something that now I know I said at the very start of this that this isn't like a revolutionary book, but that kind of is like the idea that like you know you can have this uh, form of masculinity that doesn't conform to what you might see in like sports or action movies uh, but it still comes across as being one of the better modes of masculinity yeah yeah and I think he's, he's interesting too because in a similar like way that we build up expectations of uh, of um, Jackram and Strappy based on the Colin and Nobby um, Blouse feels like one in a long line of Pratchett skewering of the traditional upper classes you know who are very much uh well in need um of skewering and, and he does it so well uh but i suppose <laughs> to see a character like that who like isn't the kind of like uh savant like veterinary or a, an utter uh like eccentric kind of warm-hearted almost outcast like sybil um like who is he's very much uh, to a certain degree as yeah like he's not very masculine but he's also kind of in with the in crowd and that he's been given this uh, you know, position of command and like, you know, he has all the requisite, like he's been to school, the right schools and, you know, he's already in a kind of relationship with this childhood sweetheart. He's, gonna marry, he's reading all the right books and yet he's not, you know, entirely flawed either. There's like, there's uh, some good to him, but also some kind of uh, effectiveness to him as a result of all that, like as a result of the, the tactics is, you know, military education as removed from the reality of uh, real warfare, as it seems, it also offers him some special insights um mm. one thing i i do think with him though uh is that like it, it's not so much directly with him but what did you think about like given that say like what we essentially see in Bartogravia is a repressive uh theocracy or like semi well i suppose it isn't really a theocracy because normally the, the duchess runs things rather than the priesthood but it's like it's a repressive religious society right i mean we've We'll go into this in more detail, mm. but like comparisons of like you know post independence Ireland are uh, abound, and I'm sure there's many other uh, societies you could uh, compare it to as well. 
we've seen like in disc world we've seen societies like uh the jelly baby and pyramids and um om omnia and in, in small gods that are much more i suppose directly theocratic like they have like a either like a ruling priesthood or a kind of ruling uh like uh, you know god kinghood um but mm-hmm. so this is like a little less direct than them, but it's nonetheless meant to be a very repressive place where this Nuganite religion has, you know, created this uh, truly, uh, you know, narrow-minded and, and, and frankly nasty society. What did you think of that? Uh, like, just overall, the overall picture of Bartogravia uh, we get, was it was it kind of convincing to you? Or did it resound with you? What, what did you think of it overall? Well, as you said earlier, I definitely found a lot of uh, comparisons that were easily made with, uh, you know, early early Ireland and like, you know, the absolute iron grip that uh, the Catholic Church had over Ireland, like in, in that time. Um, there's a moment in it, uh, I think Maledict says, where uh, it, 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 took, it took a society like this to show how progressive... Um, all these women were being and I think that's the reason that it was set specifically in Borogravia as opposed to somewhere like Ankh-Morpork mm-hmm. like um, I don't think you could have had this taking place in one of the like in say Ankh-Morpork at all with the Ankh-Morpork army because I mean you have the presence of Angua in this book is the thing so like and, and actually we should come back to that as well like her, her role is an interesting one in this too I guess um, I guess it's it's interesting because I feel like having it in this theocracy is just the way to it's kind of Terry Pratchett's way of like kind of bringing it back a couple of years and to highlight the more feminist uh, points that he's trying to make in a more stark light than it would be in a much more contemporary setting you know and I think for the most part that works It's be- it, I think it's better for that because you can see the points he's trying to make much clearer than it would have been if this was just like say a very very contemporary novel um what what did you think of it i would i, I would agree with you in that like it, it shows it very effectively and as, as we were talking about earlier that notion of like internalized misogyny and how these systems that don't seem to help anyone continue to be uh perpetuated and um endure you know even though you would think you know, Vimes looks at it from the outside and talks about a whole country going mad. It's not the people that have gone mad. It's just the country um, in that, like, it's mm. it's it's kind of like living in a system that doesn't help anyone. I think all of that's really good. Um, where, where I think there's sort of, like, I don't know, maybe holes in it is too much, but where it's sort of... Uh, uh, the niggles with me is, like, to mm. accommodate certain bits of the book... The, the extent to which Bartogravia is this utterly inward-looking place in which all of the people are kind of under the tome of the, the Nuganite religion sort of blows hot and cold to an extent. Like, on the one hand, I, mm. I, I like that it isn't somewhere as severe as Omnia, right? Like, you know, uh, in, mm. in the way that, say, like, uh, um, you know, post-independence Ireland isn't somewhere like uh, uh, the you know the city of Munster in Germany when the Anabaptists took it over in the uh, whatever it was 17th century um like it isn't a complete you know utter theocracy where it'd be like shot on sight for you know saying uh, uh 
uh, saying the wrong thing. Um, so there's this level of like sarkiness and discontent among the people, you know, like like that that wouldn't be there or isn't shown in in Omnia, you know, like that wonderful bit in Small Gods where you have the conversation between I, I can't remember the names of the characters, but they're two people who are essentially secret resistance members, but they're having this terrified conversation mm. where they both think the other one is also a resistance member, but they're really afraid to kind of say so in case they're giving themselves away, you know? Uh, I get it, yeah, like, yeah. I get it, been like, conversations like that don't happen in Bologravia, you know, it's not quite that, like, uh, directly repressive. Um, but, it's tricky for me to articulate, but so you have this notion, Trouda, of like, Polly and the others becoming aware that they've kind of been lied to about the state of Borgravia and how well the war is going, right? And like that they kind mm -hmm. of find out through William the War, through the discaptured soldiers, that they're actually losing the war. Uh, and for me, that doesn't quite resound as much as it should as a revelation because they never seem to buy into Borgravia all that much anyway, you know? And... and, and I, I don't yeah. mean that you have to have all of the characters being like, say, like Br Bruta in uh, Small Gods, where like they're really rah rah nugget heads, you know, like and, and they're this mm. like when, their experiences are like the first time seeing anything that goes against that. But I think you can have this level of cognitive dissonance where Polly, you know, uh, uh, Lofty, all the others have like their own various dissatisfactions with uh, Nugganite Borogravian society. But growing up in that insular society, they sort of have trouble of conceptualizing what's outside of it. So even though they're like, oh yeah, this is horrible, this is senseless, the revelation that they're being lied to and things are different is still something that shocks them, you know what I mean? Yeah, like uh, this pure yeah. supposition, but I'd imagine like like North Korean people now, right? Like you, you know, are probably the only remaining, perhaps the only remaining comparison, and and this to this degree. But like I'd say. You know, in North Korea, where you or I to be able to, like, somehow disguise ourselves and go in there and talk to people, you'd probably find, like, a range of people who are, like, utter true believers in the, you know, Kim dynasty, think they're, like, the sun shines out their arses, to people who, you know, whatever, openly, or are fermenting discontent against it, whether it's just privately or, or in some more public way, to people who kind of realize, like, yeah, no matter what the propaganda says, we we live in a bit of a shithole, but like, but still would be say shocked to discover the extent of the difference between North Korea and say South Korea or Japan or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Like I feel like that's where Polly and the others should fall. Like they they're smart enough, uh, and and Nuganite society isn't so oppressive that they can't conceive of discontent with it. But at the same time. They're, it's a closed enough society that, that the revelations of oh we're losing the war you know this is how things work outside Vimes isn't really the butcher Vimes he's actually that you know that stuff should be uh, still going to be surprising to them and it's sort of presented as surprising but it never really feels like it lands for me with enough oomph you know what I mean like I, I, I feel like by the beginning of this book they've all been discontented enough for Borgravian society that nothing you tell them would surprise them, with the possible exception of Wazer, who's obviously mm. really pious with the Duchess now. But you know what I mean? That you could come up to like, like Polly and Tonker and uh, Maledict within the first like fifty pages and be like, "Oh, do you know Ankh Park actually isn't really that bad? 
and they probably accept it. You know that, mm. and and I sort of feel there should be more gradual transition, as as they you know learn the how they've been lied to and open their minds a bit and so on. Yeah. So the way I viewed it now, and this was definitely a bit more closed-minded on my part, but it's how I saw it was it wasn't I wasn't so much comparing Borogravia with. Uh, you know, somewhere like North Korea, but I found myself comparing it more to, again, bringing it back to uh, Ireland, would be like Ireland in the 80s or around that kind of area. So I'm sorry if we're kind of like alienating any of our listeners now, but this is just like the easiest way I have to kind of explain how I felt about it. So I don't think it's so much like the idea that um, they were surprised to hear all these things that like, uh, oh, it should have been a lot weightier. It's not a case of them being surprised to learn these things it's more the idea to hear people say it out loud Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean so like you know the way they constantly say like um like polly's always trying to eke it out of like the likes of blouse or jackrum like uh so we're winning the war right they want to hear people say we're winning the war nobody really believes it but they still want people to say it and i found it similar to like you know again 1980s ireland or whatever or even earlier or that kind of area you know where yeah like you know the way people didn't really believe every single aspect of the Bible blindly, but by the same token, like if you ever heard some, like in the eighties, if someone like said like, "Oh, sure, I wouldn't be going to mass. I don't believe in God," that'd be like, "Holy shit, yeah, you can't yeah. say that." But yeah, there's still plenty of people, obviously, who'd walk around going around thinking that, and everyone knew that. Everyone mm-hmm. knows that there's like, yeah, there's people out there who don't believe in God. There's people who don't believe in this kind of thing. Yada yada yada. But to outright say it in that kind of setting that's kind of what is the shocking thing and i think that's i think that's the kind of vibe that terry pratchett was going with with this one the fact that they come out and say it and they're kind of openly going you know what our society is backwards we always knew it in our heads but to actually say it out loud to do something about it that's what's really you know making a difference here in this book yeah yeah i think that's that's a that's a fair point um i suppose what it misses for me is that after strappy leaves you don't really have anyone kind of enforcing the official line as it were like i suppose blouse mm. kind of would buy into it more than than the others uh but he doesn't really you know there's no scenes where like say he's reprimanding them for uh you know for kind of like thinking seditious or unnuggenite thoughts he, he doesn't seem particularly pious in any way and i suppose what i'd like to see is more of like those sides of it rubbing against one another you know like in these societies you would have people who are who buy in more to whatever the official ideology the party line is and you would have these people who like you say kind of like no it's not the case but are sort of it's too big of them to conceive of or say it you know and 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 that tension playing off and that tension isn't there because you you don't have anyone who's uh towing the party line the other part is like you have stuff like like, Blouse's upbringing and his, like, you know, education is sort of meant to satirize the British officer class all the way up until uh, the First World War and, and perhaps a little beyond it, you know, of, that you have these people who are, like, uh, put into positions of command based on breeding rather than any actual military experience. Uh, and and his kind of, like, uh, upbringing in this private all-boys school where he talks about putting on a plays. And there's a lot of humor in that and a lot of interesting social commentary. As I said, I love the dynamic between Blouse and, and Jackram and with, with Polly in the middle over that. But but when you have Blouse mm-hmm. talking about, like, this 
cross-dressing uh, classmate of his. Like, it, it kind of reminded me of, like, Father Bigley and Father Ted, you know? Or, or the, like, uh, I, I can't remember the name <laughs> of the character, but it's, like, he's referenced by... You have the later scene with the High Command, and they reference that person as well. Like, you know, all of them would put on these plays <laughs> where some of them would have to play the female characters, but he was the one who really liked it. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just have to do that. Oh, but, yeah, you know, he, he wore the dress a lot more often. And, and that's, you know, that's uh, funny enough. But I'm also thinking, I'm like... In, in the picture of Nugganite society we're meant to get, like, should should this lad be able to, like, are, are we, what I mean is, are we able to, on the one hand, accept you have this, like, ultra-oppressive uh, society where the likes of, like, Tonker and uh, Lofty and Wazer are being sent off to, you know, uh, to do, like, unpaid labor and get, like, horrible mistreatment from these, you know, religious enforcers, um... And on the other hand, we also have the, like, and they're doing that for kind of going outside the bounds of what is prescribed for women. And on the other hand, we have these people who, I mean, I presume this fellow is meant to be some level of gender queer, and it's sort of like accommodated, and it's just kind of a joke, or you have the likes of, mm. but on, on the other hand, that sort of makes sense. So like within, again, to drop back the comparison within like post-independence Ireland, you had uh, your man... Uh, Hilton Edwards, who, who was it like him? He was either in, he was in charge of the gate, I think, and he was the gate theater, and he was gay with was it was he, one of the fellows who used to run RTE, and everyone sort of knew it, but like it, mm. they were just able to like live it out because they were in a high enough position, you know. And you'd have stuff like like in within kind of like the strictly Catholic Ireland, you'd also have like pantomimes with like you know drag acts and things like that in it so yeah yeah as i'm saying it i mean it perfectly makes sense but it just sort of reads sort of oddly you know it makes sense from the point of view of like yeah you have oppressive enough societies that are sort of fluid in in odd ways in real life but when you're trying to depict it in a book it kind of needs to be tighter i feel um and, and it just feels an odd fit to have blouse having this like private school upbringing that has like all these boys dressing up as girls and you know one of them who is clearly uh like like queer after a fashion and the rest of them just sort of like accommodate it with a nod and a wink alongside ultra oppressive stuff now i suppose you may call it like as a class commentary because blouse is from the upper classes and they're able to get away with more but it, it just it i don't know it, it feels a, a bit iffy in trying to depict this uh trying to paint the picture of Boragravia to us i suppose for me, at least. Mm. Well, you know, there's uh, when I was when I was doing a bit of like research on this afterwards, I realized Terry Pratchett actually had like a bit of a get out of jail free card when he was writing this book because uh, so this was written in 2003, right? Which would have been like in the middle of third wave feminism, and uh, so one of the central ideas of that is like you know embracing like all the diversity and individualism of like the di- uh, different women and femininities like in third wave feminism. Which means, by definition, it's going to be like a very, very, very broad, wide-ranging um, definition and very confusing. And uh, I think it was, um, well, what was her name? There was a scholar, E.E. something, E. Elizabeth Evans, that was her name. Uh, so she had a quote about it that was, the confusion that, the confusion surrounding like what uh, feminism is uh, the confusion that uh, defines what third wave feminism is, in some respects, its defining feature, which 
seems very accurate like when you're looking if you're looking at like this book in that respect that makes a lot of sense because it is very confusing so like anything that's like a bit out of place or but like oh i'm not sure if that syncs up with this you're kind of like well you know that's that syncs up perfectly then if it doesn't make sense then that's exactly what he's going for that's, do you know what i mean like any- yeah i sort of do but like it, it's not what I'm faulting isn't his depiction of like feminism or what constitutes a kind of fulfilling or, you know, uh, empowering uh, resolution um, or depiction of the the female characters book. I more mean like what the society they're rebelling against and that represses them feels at times a bit sketchily drawn. Like it's trying to, mm. it's spreading itself through thin and trying to like. Um, parody and deal with a lot at once in about like you know uh british military culture of the late 19th and early 20th century but also kind of um you know repressive religious societies and at, at times so it's it's more like what the depiction of the society itself feels a bit more stretched on i i mean what you're saying about the the quote about like the confusion i think that makes sense and that's perfectly in keeping with something like what we talked about with the point you raised with with jade where like she gets this uh resolution that polly seems kind of confused by and can't get her head around why that's you know jade will want that but sort of accepts it because she's like mm. well you know different strokes for different folks basically um i i mm. think like that that makes a certain sort of sense but depicting the repressive society they're rebelling against as like in a way that seems to hint sometimes where like, oh, maybe it's not quite as repressive as it seemed. Feels yeah. more, more like, I suppose it takes the, takes the, the oomph out of what they're doing. But as I said, the more I talk about it, the more I feel it's a kind of harsh criticism because uh, societies are rarely completely linear or, str- you know, straight. Like the, what, what is nominally the ruling ideology is often kind of worked around or like uh, rebellion against it in certain areas is just like accommodated in the way that you had, as I said, like you had stuff that would seem to fly in the face of traditional gender roles in Ireland for so long, like drag and panto Mm. and stuff like that, that was just accommodated. But yet at the same time, uh, women in their own lives face, face a lot of repression. So, I mean, like, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. It makes sense when you apply it to a real society, but you just kind of expect a book to be neater about it, or if not, if not neater, then kind of draw more attention to the chaos of that. Like maybe have Polly or someone wonder when Blouse is talking about, oh, I'm better at pretending to be a woman because I used to do this in school. Have her wonder about like, wow, this is such a crazy situation where we have to like illegally Mm. pretend to be men when uh, these men are allowed to pretend to be women while they're at school but a blouse were to say decide when he's out of school oh I want to put on a dress he'd probably be you know hauled in front of some nugganite court um, like yeah, yeah. I, 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 I suppose I like want a little more where they kind of wonder about the contradictions in that than just having those contradictions mm. there under the surface and you as a reader are kind of expected to uh, make sense of them yeah, I mean, you're not wrong by any means because, like, um, it is something that you probably should be, uh, you have your attention drawn to more. What I suspect, is, like, was because, like, this is a fairly sizable book for, like, uh, Terry Pratchett, yeah, like, you yeah. know, nearly 500 pages, which by his standards is, is quite big. 
I suspect what it was is that like uh, the Nugganite setting is just that a setting, and he didn't want to put too much stress onto like theology in this book, considering how many of his other books like explored that. And um, and whereas with this one, like he is very very much diving headfirst into uh, feminism, femininity, gender roles, and all that sort of thing. And now I'm not. Ex- excusing this because you're perfectly justified in like thinking all these things and wondering like why hasn't more attention been brought to this but he just doesn't want to spend too much time on it uh when the focus of his book is very much on gender roles um i think you're right i like i i saw that the bit of that myself but i i just kind of dismissed it not you know forgave it just dismissed it as like oh well clearly this is what he's focusing on not on theology yeah, well, no, I mean, it's just the theology part. I don't want to read the Book of Nuggan. It would be incredibly boring, but more that, like, we he he shows bits that, like, he, he gives us initially the scenario of the society that has very restrictive gender roles and how these women are having to work around them to, you know, uh, help themselves, save themselves, and so on, but yet then depicts other parts that seem to depict a much looser... Uh, gender roles within this society you know what i mean like like where blouse and his classmates can dress up in drag and that's just all sort of par for the course um and they can have a classmate who seems queer in some way and it just be sort of thing they just shrug or joke about um and and as i said like i don't mind that i just wish more attention was drawn to the contradiction of that like that within Bollegrave in society you have scenarios where women are dragged to like this unpaid labor and horrific abuse for going outside this very narrow conception of what a woman should do what it means to be a woman and you also have the cream of kind of young male ruling class of Borgravia being put in a scenario where they're completely flying in the face of what presumably is expected of young men and it's sort of just like greeted with a shrug and I, I don't I don't mind that I just wish the the, the contradiction in that had been at least mused on for a while, you know. Um, mm. Does it does it say though the school that Blouse go to? Do they say that was in Borgrave? Oh yeah, yeah, I think is so. There any chance it was uh, in... Did they? Well, I don't okay. know if they like explicitly say it. They certainly say it, don't say it was outside. And given the picture we're painted mm. of how insular Borgrave is, in like you know, they they don't have any newspapers, Presumably. they don't have any contact yet. It's hard to imagine that they would send them. Outside. I mean, it's supposed to code, but if they did, that would be another interesting thing worth drawing attention to to point out that hypocrisy and so on. Uh, just, just one small thing like that might be like, I mean, I suppose as you said, like you know, the women in the society, like you know, they are like penalized for uh, acting outside their assigned gender roles very, very harshly, and like the men, seemingly they don't not at all. I mean, this might just be like an example of a very patriarchal society, like turning a blind eye to some points where like men act in a certain way. But like, whereas women, because it is a patriarchy, they are, of course, penalized as harshly as they are. Possibly. Oh, no. Maybe. No, maybe ab- not, ab- ab- it's, it's absol- absolutely. It could be. And I mean, that's like fair enough. I, I just I can't help shake the feeling because there was never attention drawn to that. And I'm sure there's people listening to this who think mm-hmm. like, look, you know, an author shouldn't spoon feed you. Like if, if I'm already drawing these conclusions yeah, yeah, and you yeah. are, why do I need it said? But I suppose I can never shake the feeling that it's just that like, he's writing this book about this, you know, really harsh patriarchal society, but he also wants to get in a few jokes about like, you know, Victorian British private school, all boys private schools. So 
he just mashes them together, you know what I mean? Like, so long as he doesn't draw our attention to the that, that hypocrisy, I can never help but feel like, ah, uh, it's just Pratchett having his cake and eating it, where, like, he wants to make jokes about these two different mm. things, and it, they, not that they don't match, but that, like, you have to work to make them match, and instead he's just, you know, putting them out there and kind of hoping that, like, the joke will be funny enough that we don't, like, look any deeper. And maybe I'm being harsh, but, like, you mm. know, it's... I suppose, like, there, there's a lot about this book. I, because it deals with such heavy stuff, you know, it's, it's these kind of anomalies jar all the more. On, on the subject yeah. of that, we, we're talking about uh, the Ankh Morpork side of it. And and I, I think this mm. is something, like, in that, like, I'll never complain about the presence of Angua and Vimes. They're great characters. But, like, it's also weird that, like, Angua's status, as she's essentially Vimes' second-in-command in, in Bargravia, you know, and we do get a bit at the end where I think like Polly and Maledict they're kind of amazed that she's like a woman and she's openly in well not the military as, as Vimes would always point out but like in the, shall we say like like the armed uh, wing of the, the state you know um, yeah but it's kind of weird that throughout it we don't get more of like you know we get the feeling like say like Slovenia and these other places are, aren't much less repressive than uh, Bargravia and, and they don't seem to quibble about having a woman in such a high up position it's also weird that when we're getting the the uh, propaganda the anti-Ankh-Morpoth propaganda that the Bargravians have like Vimes the Butcher we don't hear more about them that like this isn't a part of the tubes like you know and not only these Ankh-Morpoth not only are they led by this like bloodthirsty killer Vimes he has a woman in like you know a position <laughs> of command like this is what godless heathens they are it, it's just I don't know it's odd that like it, it feels like her only role throughout it is more like a plot based one of like okay as a werewolf she can track them and then she can give them those supplies which creates a sense of mystery and furthers the sense of like what are we fighting for who are we fighting against and so on um, and also like mm. uh, like uh, creates a sense of like oh well v- Vimes isn't really against our heroes here um, that like her role in the book is just much more of a, a plot based thing to accommodate that like okay like as a werewolf she's the member of the watch who can go out and, and do that you know and and it's just I feel that, like while we do get that bit where like Polly's gobsmacked by you know a woman in this position of command I, I just feel like there's more to be mined there that we don't really get um, and it's a pity mm. What do you think? There's, well, there's one sentence there that really, really hits hard. And it's, it's very simple, very unfortunate and just very, oh, it's crippling when I read it. It's uh, the bit where Angua is saying that like, uh, she tells her that she's a werewolf as well. And um, she's saying like how, oh yeah, I saw that you were women and all that. And uh, incidentally, I wouldn't have told Vimes you were women if I hadn't heard you instead of just smelled you and so on, so on. And then she says, um, werewolves are a bit like vampires. We're tolerated if we're careful. And Polly's like, oh yeah, I understand that. So are we. And that bit really like brought it all to the surface for me. The fact that like the the use of the word tolerated is really unfortunate, but horribly accurate as well it's that like uh, you know in a patriarchal society like you know you will sometimes get um, you know women uh, trying to let me see like 
strike out and kind of uh, defy what their assigned gender roles are and pretty much no matter what way what they do it is always going to be a case of how much is tolerated like you know like Angua she is tolerated like and like that's fair enough because like she's in a position where she seems happy enough like in the previous watch books like you know she has a very healthy relationship with Carrot and um, she's got a high ranking job so things are working fine with her so yes she is tolerated mm-hmm. and it's like you know in a one way it's fine like she has everything she wants more or less but it's again it's just that idea that kind of hypothetical situation that she is just being tolerated not accepted do you know what I mean and like yeah that it's it kind of encapsulates the entire discourse that's taking place here like how much are these women going to be tolerated versus uh accepted like even the fact that um at the end of the book you know uh where women are now accepted into the army Mm -hmm. Uh, they're still not 100% they're still not 100% accepted for like the way they act and all so that's I think that's why Polly uh, goes in once again disguised as a man so that there's no boundaries no, no. to how at, she at, behaves at, at, at the perceived. end she's clearly a woman like she's wearing military uniform but it kind of has like a, like a skirt or something uh, on it so it's like yeah yeah and she talks about it at, at the very end when she's like I think that the final scene is on a boat or something, but she's going down to, to there and there's like people looking at her and kind of looking at her scans like, well, like it's a woman, but like she's a, a military person. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I could have sworn that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, but even still, like, I mean, the point still remains the same. Like it is down to like, you know, being um, tolerated and, uh, ah, it's it just it kind of it rung very true for me there like it was really unfortunate but yeah because uh this isn't a case of like you know the plot just being wrapped up very cleanly it is a case of like this is still a continuing discourse in like society and i think i think that the use of that word kind of because it was for me anyway it hit very very hard i think it was very pointed and deliberate to use that word tolerated but um that was just me how did you get that as well or um i i hadn't thought of it to the uh, depth you have but I, I mean it definitely I, I can see what you mean and it's a tension that we see a lot with it with Angua in, in a way that's really interesting where like you know the other watch are sort of like it's sort of useful to have her but they're also kind of scared by the fact that she's a werewolf um, and there's a great quote from her I think it's way uh, often like is it like snuff where she talks about Angmorport being a melting pot but it melts the same way like in that you know, mm. you, all these different cultures and species can come there, but so long as they all kind of conform to some sense of like more porky in behavior and culture, they're accommodated and tolerated. And there's another bit when, um, uh, like she's saying to, I think it's, I think it's in Fia Clay with Cheerity, where she talks about like, like you're tolerated as a woman so long as you kind of act like a lad, you know, in, in the watch, like, um, like, like Cheery's oh, yeah, kind of yeah, envious yeah. of her that she can openly be female. And she's like, well, I can, but I just sort of also have to, like, conform to the kind of, like, laddish, um, like, code of behavior. So even though they, they, they know she's a woman, she's kind of mm. b- b- performing as a lad. Uh, and, and, and there's sort of, like, we see a sense of that in Trout Monsters Regiment with, 
you know, Polly interested in not only dressing up as women, but also putting on this behavior that they see as laddish behavior. And I think that's why the end of it is so significant in that it's like they're going back to war, Polly and Maledict, but they're doing it on their terms. They're openly female. They've got these kind of like, like feminized military uniform. Uh, and even though they meet the uh, two young soldiers who they realize are men disguised as women, you know, and they're sort of like, okay, you know, here's how you pretend to be a man. Their presence is kind of saying, but you don't have to, like, you know, the winds are changing, you know, mm. um, and that kind of flies in the face too of like the scene, the trial scene where you have the, uh, the high command trying to figure out like, okay, you know, we'll reward you for having helped us get free well we got to find some way to do it in a way that kind of conforms to what people expect of bargravian women so in other words like mm. you're you you'll be you'll be tolerated so long as we can keep you in this this box and yeah i, I really mm. really like the end of this book for how for one for how like um after the the like when i was reading about the, the uh, peace treaty i was thinking this is all too simple you know like uh, changing the society like Wazir's kind of impassioned speech from the Duchess uh, uh, like about you've got to abandon Nuggan I'm like like we've seen how deep the claws of Nuggan run in that you have pro- high proportion of the high command are actually women living in a society that represses them and yet they are furthering that society because the the iron is in the blood you know so I'm thinking one speech mm. albeit from you know, in supernatural circumstances from like the ghost of their uh, semi-deified, um, uh, you know, quasi-monarch, I'm like, isn't going to be enough to turn everything around. And I, li- I really like in the end when the war starts again, we ha- we kind of have an indication of that, like of that, like, yeah, change has come. Like you have Lofty living as an unmarried mother in the inn with Polly and her family and no one's going to repress her for that, you know, Uh uh, you have Polly being able to kind of stake her claim at the end. She goes off to war again. And she's like, I'm going to make sure like they don't make the same mistakes again, but I'm also, I'm not going to hide my, who I am. I'm, I'm a woman going to war. So we have like, there's been change made, but also there's kind of an attempt to keep the wheel turning that the end mm. is essentially saying, Polly's going to continue to kick against that, but she's in a stronger position to kick against it than she was in the start of this book. And that might seem like a minor step, but it's still a really significant one, and it seems like a much more realistic one to me than imagining that, like, oh, mm. by the end of this book, all of Bartagravia's problems are solved, and, you know, they live happily ever after. Absolutely. So, yeah. I, I think it would be, ver- be a very naive ending if that had been the case now. Like, they, they, I would not have enjoyed it nearly as much if that had been the case. <laughs> yeah, although the, the thing about the, the end... Um, uh, I was thinking about this with uh, Vimes, right? Where like we get a bit, m- we get more of Vimes than we do of Angua, but I can't help but shake the feeling that his presence there is largely driven by the plot of like having Vimes on the other side of the fence will allow this resolution, uh, this truce to be reached at the end of it. You know, when you have uh, the Baragravian side of uh, convinced to you know uh, strike for peace through the Duchess slash Wazer, you, you need to have the other mm. side uh, who previously we've seen characterized through the kind of like uh, chauvinistic, uh, jingoistic, aggrandizing figure of Prince Heinrich. You need to have the other side been willing to mm. match that piece. How do you do that? Well, 
put volumes in. The reader knows volumes is from Jingo, from other books, is, is against the soul thing. So we'll, but we also really respect him. So we're like, yeah, volumes can knock their heads together and get this done, you know. Um, and obviously we see we see yeah. more of him than we do of Angulo, but I can't help but feel like his presence there. I, I don't know if you call it a day you say Machina because it's not like you know it's a spoiler or it's a twist that he's there. We we have him throughout the book, but I, I can't help but feel like that he's sort of planted there just so we can have this this temporary resolution at the end. And that isn't mm. terribly egregious to me as it could be, because as I said, we, we get the indication at the very end of, yeah, well, it hasn't solved everything forever. Look, war's broken out again. There's still a certain amount of old attitudes that need challenging and that poly and malady they're going to challenge. Um, but it it does seem like to kind of it, it ties a neater bow uh, on the plot, and and it, I suppose we talked before about how, with some exceptions, one of the great strengths about Discworld as a series is that you could read almost all of them as a standalone. And yeah, even if you get more out of having read the what's previously happened to these characters or, or these places, you can still enjoy them as a standalone. I do wonder how much this works as a standalone when the presence of Vimes and like our understanding of Vimes having previously read about him is key to the you know ultimately the plot of this book the war being resolved in the way it is mm. yeah I think you're right because even the way he's introduced I think there's a lot of assumed knowledge behind it that like we we know how this person is like as uh it launches right into a load of stuff that like um like the way he speaks to people and all that it's like there's there's no lead up to it at all really so yeah i think you're right there i think there is a case of um i don't think this book would i mean you can i'm sure you can still enjoy it more or less as a standalone but yeah yeah i think definitely you get more out of this one having read previous watchbooks now with previous knowledge of vines in your head before going into it yeah I wonder if uh, if there's any possibility that like they could have. Like, I know obviously Vimes is a fan favorite. We've talked about him many, many times and how, what a great character he is. But would this have been a good opportunity to have placed? Um, oh no, actually, I was going to say would it have been a good opportunity to have placed Angua in his position. But I guess logistically that just wouldn't make sense in the world because obviously Vimes is such a high-ranking official, whereas like uh, Angua is just like a. Captain, well, well, like it's, um, I suppose Vimes is there in, in his capacity Sanders. as Duke rather than as much as his capacity of commander of the watch, so it, it's got to be him in some ways. Mm. It would be very interesting to see, like, uh, like glimpses of the watch without Vimes if it's like whatever you know, uh, like Angua, Colon, uh, Boogie Swires are the ones stationed out as part of the Ankh Park delegation, but um, or if it's just Sybil, say, like Sybil is the um. You know, as Duchess of Ankh is the is is the one who's like, you know, di- part of the diplomatic delegation. That would have been fun. Um, and again, would have would have uh, raised more uh, gender things. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting this this coming after uh, We Free Men, where you have Granny showing up at the end, and we're kind of debating about like, you know, how much does this work if you haven't read any of the others? You know, it's like. Who's this one? You know, like kind of she isn't really woven mm. into the, the plot of the book uh, in the way that like he does do some work to weave Vimes in here. I suppose I just I, I wonder if you like if you didn't know him, would you be like would it take somebody? I don't know. Like you'd be like, oh, this is kind of would it be interesting to you that you're like, oh, this apparent enemy commander is actually quite a nice, reasonable guy. Would it take the tension out while you're thinking, mm. oh, hang on, sure, like 
they think they're fighting against this, but you know, like we know this lad's gonna uh, make sure that nothing too bad happens to Borgravia at the end. Like there's no draconian, um, you know, whatever uh, war sanctions put on him. Would it add intrigue? Where it's like, oh look, you've actually got two sympathetic sides. I don't know. I, when we get to the uh, Twitter comments we had, I, I did have one one um, commenter who said this was the first one he read. And he really enjoyed it. So, you know, uh, maybe that flies mm. in the face of what I'm saying. I would say one minor thing I didn't like about Vimes getting a truce, and I don't know if you felt this as well. I remember you said in uh, We Free Men how you really disliked how, like, Pratchett kind of ladders on the praise of Tiffany true mistake early on, where she's like, whoa, what have I got here? Uh, and we talked about how we didn't like that with um, Lucy in early on at Tifa Time. I think you get it a bit with Vimes mm. with the... Uh, is he like the kind of Slovenian sort of like civil servant or whatever who's who's delegated to, you know? I think the first scene we get with Vimes is from that guy's point of view, which which I, like I like as, as an yeah. idea, you know, like where you'd be reading it and you're thinking, oh, hang on, is is this is this Vimes? Oh, cool, but yeah. like the, like the way your man's like he wasn't like any you know uh, like diplomat I had ever met, like, uh, kind of. Um, works a bit too hard for me to like paint volumes as like this the only sane man or the maverick among all of these like you know top brass like in a way that like it's a weird thing for me having read the character or liked that bit of the character before that falls out with me because i'm like like once i know it's volumes i know that's what he's like i don't have to have another character kind of marveling over like he doesn't seem like a duke at all because i know that's what he's like you know yeah, well, I mean, for me personally, it didn't annoy me at all because, first of all, I think Vimes earns that right because we've read about him in other books. So, yeah, as you said, we know he's like this. But, like, yeah, I mean, like, this is the thing. This is the first guy this guy is meeting him. So I feel like, yeah, no, he's perfectly justified in, like, thinking, like, what the hell is going on? I'm not used to this. And I didn't think it was laid on that heavily, personally. So, um, yeah, I had I had no issues with that now in this book. I thought it was perfectly fine. Yeah, uh, it, it wouldn't um, be a, a huge sticking point to me, but I just thought it was it was a bit sort of, uh, I clumsily done, I suppose, you know, and and made mm. it's, I, it's a weird thing. I, I kind of made Vimes's presence seem a bit more kind of uh, indulgent done done it. it maybe done it is or done it could be you know like like more of a sort of like oh I'll get this you know see glimpses of this car, car like in a way that say in the truth we see vimes from william's point of view and that kind of shows us this yeah. other aspect of vimes where like you know as we talked about before the, the sort of uh police brutality is maybe too strong but the notion of him being kind of too cavalier with what he can do as a as a police officer you know where it's just like detritus beat him up if he doesn't comply and when we're reading the books from vine's point of view we're sort of so caught up in that that it's just like yeah come on come on keep things going and it's kind of interesting to see it from william's point of view as a member of the press where suddenly this like really uh, grumpy commanding officer who's kind of quite like threatening and uncooperative with the press doesn't seem like an entirely positive thing. Seems like a very understandable thing from Vimes' point of view because the press is literally this new thing. But you you suddenly find yourself questioning well, when you see Vimes being kind of grumpy and uncooperative with the likes of Rust. It's cool when you see well William suddenly are like, oh actually this is interesting that these characters we both like are at odds. 
but for a very understandable way. Whereas here, I'm like, here we have another opportunity to see Vimes from the point of view of someone else in like these people from outside of Ankh-Morpork, these like Slovenian and other members of the Alliance. And it doesn't really do much to shed any new side on his character to me. You know what I mean? That sort of maverick stuff. It's like, well, I know he's like that anyway, you know. And also, show don't tell, right? Like, we're going to see that in the way we see him act with the other characters. And yeah. Anyway, so we don't need to be told. Um, I don't know, it just felt like a bit of a bit of a missed opportunity and, and, and felt a bit flat, but not hugely glaring. Um, one thing I, I would, uh, I suppose, more... Um, a bigger sticking block for me in, in this book is there's a sort of a bit of messiness about the plot of it uh, yeah. in that like like Polly's desire to save her brother is kind of her motivation and that seems to fade into the background and, and again there is a sense of like there is potentially something quite poignant and interesting there where she does ruminate on how quickly events have progressed you know that a few days ago she was leaving and now she's caught up in the middle of this you know like huge uh war and so on um so on the one hand i think like like it's there's something there to be mined in that she goes off to war for one reason and very quickly it becomes about something much much more but we don't really explore that you know um, and then, m- most glaringly, that bit in the crypt when the dead generations of Borogravian military rise up. As, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Like maybe I missed something. Nothing comes from that, as far as I see. Like what, what comes yeah, from it's like Wazir collapses. It's, it's a very... and it's on the point of death. But like you don't hear when they go and free the other Borogravian uh, POWs and they're fighting back and reclaiming parts of the fortress, you don't hear, oh, and in a mir- kind of Angel of Mon style miracle, they've been joined by, like, these zombies of Borogravian war heroes. Like, we never hear about that again. It's really odd. Do you know what I think that is? Um, I, I honestly think the entire reasoning behind that is for the setting, for when, um, is it Shufti? No, Wazer, when Wazer becomes possessed by the um, the mm-hmm. Duchess and, like, she's speaking to, like, all the soldiers. I think that is purely, like, for the setting of that so that it's clear that this is a very creepy, supernatural kind of thing more than anything else. Because, yeah, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. And, like, I mean, yes, it's when that happens, when she gets possessed, it is very unsettling. But, and that's the only reason that I can conjure up that why that, why they were there. That's personally now i do agree with you about like the general messiness of the plot like i mean as you said when you were saying that like uh when you're haven't read a book in a long time certain bits stick out to you certain bits don't i really struggle to remember any parts of the plot whatsoever other than in my head if i were to summarize this before i read it it would basically so uh a soldier joins the army dresses as a guy Lots of stuff happens, and at the end, they get found out, and then they have to negotiate a truce. I could remember nothing in the middle. And even still, like, it is very messy. Like, I forgot William DeWord was in it. I forgot that they had the entire interaction with the prince. I forgot all of that. It's all very all over the place. And a lot of what I attribute that to as well is... um, I feel like a lot of the characters, uh, like obviously we were talking about how Jack Rome and Blouse are very, very interesting characters, and obviously Polly, she's our protagonist, like, and they all have very distinct ca- uh, characteristics. I feel like a lot of the other members of the squad are very one-dimensional, um, like Wazer, Shufti, uh, is it Tonker? 
I don't know. I, I, and, I think uh, Conker's quite interesting as this sort of like she's belligerent and aggressive and in some ways that aren't always very helpful, but in a way that's very understandable given where she's come from, you know? And I think you equally have moments where you sort of almost cheer her on or where we're meant to nod in agreement with her, like angry response to some and then others where that seems really frustrating and counterproductive. Um, and we don't, I mean, mm. like Lofty's kind of defined by how quiet she is, but I think like her and Tonker make it interesting uh, pair in that way. Um, actually, what what, what Ryan Carter mm. you mentioned about not uh, forgetting about William being in it, I I had too, but having read the truth, uh, I really like how he's depicted here. Where again, seeing him from yeah, another point of view, actually. where you see the crucial importance of what he represents in being a free press, you know, like um, both yeah. in like uh, the scandal it causes with this picture of Prince Heinrich, but also how like you know, the Bolgravians being misled and uninformed on things because they don't have a William the Ward. Uh, but you also see how kind of invasive and insensitive he can seem being a journalist from another culture. You know, when he's like trying to get that, that, that bit where he says to them, like, yeah, it says you're like slaughtered this villagers back there. And, you know, there's this, uh, Pratchett points out this like deathly silence descends and they're like, no, we found them dead. And he kind of realizes what like a horrible thing that that is to suggest to them um, or how he sort of can't understand why they wouldn't want to speak to him. And, you know, um, so I, I think he's, he's mm. quite well, uh, well used here. But yeah, the, the uh, kind of, yeah, the, the is sort of uh, messiness with the plot. There is an interesting part of how the plot's done in that like, Polly later reflects that like Wazer is actually this kind of Joan of Arc figure and that really it's Wazer's mm. story, but we happen to be seeing it from Polly's point of view and Polly's kind of reflecting on just being a side character in someone else's story and that now like it's essentially Wazer who's resolved the war by carrying the spirit of the Duchess and that she now has this position in General Frock's household. Um, you know, and that, like, Wazer led the, the uh, Bornegravians in on a white horse to the Duchess's palace and kind of finally ended mm. this horrible stagnation they had had. Um, and I do think there's something really interesting there about, like, telling a story from the point of view of a character who essentially isn't really the protagonist. You know, it's someone else who's the hero who resolves these things. Um and I, I, I like that part of it. I really enjoyed. I just think kind of along the way, in the way that the story's told, it's sort of, uh, um, yeah, it's 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 uh, I don't know, like clumsy at times. I really like like the way Wazer's piety and zealousness is dealt with. You know that it's at once really yeah. pitiable but kind of awe-inspiring. Like the part where she says the prayer over the grave, and Polly's talking about like how silly she looks with her like eyes or closed and her you know face clenched up. But once the prayer's over, you almost wish the world could be the way she's kind of praying for it to be. Um, and and yeah. that like like that bit where where uh, Wazer says the Duchess is over your shoulder, and Polly looks and she's like. Or you didn't see anything, but you looked, you know. So, so like, Wasser kind of sees that as like, oh, that's nice because you're kind of open to believing what I'm saying isn't complete bollocks, even though I know you don't believe me. Yeah, my main issue is the fact that like, and it's it's not a huge, huge sticking point. Like, it's just that um, all the characters in the ins and outs, they're just uh, well, not all of them, but like. None of them stick out in, like, say, the same way that um, members of the Watch would, you know? Like, uh, 
like I'm struggling now like I'm trying I remember is it Lofty Lofty is the one I'm struggling now to remember like what's her defining feature is does she have any the only thing I remember is and I could even be wrong in this she was the one who was a good cook right no that's Shufti See, <laughs> yeah this yeah. is it this is like how they're so they're very interchangeable in my head like I know some of them have strong characteristics so like I know uh, Shufti is the one who turns out to be a pyromaniac and she has a strong uh, connection with Tonker who's a little bit more outspoken and uh, Wazer is um, you know the very pious one so what was um, I forgot no, the name no. again Lofty, Lofty, what, Lofty is the repressed kind of pyromaniac who's in a relationship with Tonker Shufti is the, the girl who's pregnant uh, and is the good cook um, oh yes but, uh, I, I don't know I but, see, but it, it does come back to what we're debating about in We Free Men where it's like I, I think I have a bit more of a, a vivid, uh, you know, they've resounded with me a little more than they did with you, some of the some of the minor characters. But I would also question how much do you need them to stand out? You know, like you've got really good characters in yeah. in Polly, Blouse, Jackram, uh, to a certain extent with Maledict. Maledict is at least a very colourful character. Um, I, I think colorful, but I don't think very uh, complex in any way. Like she's got the fact that she's a vampire, and that's kind, and she's a little smug. And that's yeah, in my well, I, I sort of I, see. It's an odd thing that um, <laughs> like I'm I'm kind of up and down, and I, I remember one. I, I said like having read this book years ago. I think now we're discussing about like it's uh, feminism. This is probably the bit that like didn't didn't uh, um, resound with like you know like young uh, sexist me. Go rock girls. Who do I like then? You know, uh, where's the cool fella <laughs> that I can pretend to be? Um, but uh, I remember thinking that, like, oh, Mali becomes a much less interesting character when you find out uh, she's a woman. And I think what my reminiscence of that was that, like, early, really suave, cool Maledict with later Maledict, who when she's kind of confessing this, she's, like, quite, like, embarrassed and kind of is sort of, like, you know, babbling. Um, and mm. you you mentioned when we were recounting the plot how, like, Polly almost doesn't notice what she's saying. And I think mm. reading it now, I kind of like that in the sense of it's sort of like pointing out the absurdity of the whole pretense behind this, right? Like now yeah. we find out not only Polly, Jackram, all of the others are women, the high commands, uh, some of the high commanders women. Now it's like, it's sort of like pointing out the absurdity of like, it's, it's, it's not a twist anymore. Like, you know, Maledict is like, oh, I yeah. have a confession too. I'm a woman. And Polly's kind of like, yeah, whatever. And Polly's, yeah, whatever. Is not only the book kind of having fun with this like idea of like, yeah, it's not really a twist anymore, but it's also the book sort of poking the absurdity of like, sure, what what does it matter for any of them to confess their gender identity anymore? Because we're getting past mm. this point. We've we've kind of explored the absurdity of the having to pretend in the first place. Uh, and I like yeah. early on that Maledict is cool and suave, but also in a way that's kind of ambiguous and Polly sort of suspicious of her, and at times also like impatient, thinking like, who's this smug, you know, so and so. Like, because mm. I think it would be very easy to just write her as a kind of wish fulfillment, like, ah, oh, the cool vampire character, you know, um, that, like, all our, like, all the other characters just get along with her, like, ah, oh, this cool guy in our gang. Um, uh, but it's almost like, like, he's kind of written himself into a corner with her, and, and her coffee withdrawal symptoms, while some of them are funny, as I said, I'm not mad about the, the Vietnam stuff as, as you are, but some of them are funny, and um, there's an interesting threat there with, like, them wondering... Oh shit! If Maledict's, uh, you know, coming down yeah. from coffee, is is he gonna go after blood? 
Um, I, I also, it almost feels as if like, oh, I, I've written this character as too competent and to kind of like put them further up the creek and increase the stakes I need to in the same way that you have those bits of The Hobbit where Gandalf's just like I'll leave you to it lads because Tolkien's like oh, I can't have Gandalf around I want to, I need them to get in trouble you know um, it's almost like oh Maledict's too cool and competent I'll have Maledict you know uh, get coffee withdrawal symptoms so that he, you know, he as he is then uh, can solve the, the you know the, these problems a little easier uh, but it also means that like as a character, then uh, it becomes a little less interesting. We just go from like cool, suave vampire to raving, uh, you know, um, drug addict suffering from withdrawal symptoms, kind of. Yeah, but um, I will say though that one thing that you said that that's made me realize something is he does, she does sort of serve a very interesting function in that. Like the key thing that made Maledict interesting for me at the start is the fact that for the first like two, three hundred pages or whatever. Uh, Polly will mention him every now and then and in, in almost in quite a few times when she does mention Maledict she's like I'm still not sure if Maledict is a boy or a girl and it's like ooh continuing mm-hmm. continuing intrigue like it's like you know is it a boy is it a girl and then when we finally get the reveal it doesn't matter and like that's a very interesting point to make that like we were building up all this intrigue on something that really shouldn't yeah, matter yeah. at all so it's kind of Terry Pratchett pulling the rug out from under us it's like says you're getting so excited about this when in actual fact who gives a shit, you know? <laughs> like, all this thing that you cared about, it just, it's not important. And, like, it's kind of emphasizing that in a way. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, he, he, she serves a very good function. But again, that's not the complaint that I was making at the start. It's like, you know, everyone has a function, but I just, I personally don't feel that the characters are very interesting. They're, some of them are interesting, just not very mm-hmm. interesting. You know, it's 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 a minor complaint to have. Like, it's like did, I mean, I've no problem saying like, yeah, they're they're functional characters, you know, and they've got like they've all got little uh, quirks that make them engaging, but they're just not like, oh yes, here's Shufti again. I've been looking forward to reading about her. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like none of them made me really do that except for Jack Rum Blouse and Polly, really. So, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think I think that's about all I can think of to say about the book, really. Um, actually, just. I mean, we're going to be ranking now in a little bit soon, but just uh, to ask a very blatant, simple question. Did you like it? Yeah, yeah, I did overall. I certainly liked it a lot more than when I read it years and years ago. And while, like, some mm. parts of it kind of, like, I suppose, like, irked me or, or, or felt a bit like missed opportunities, I what it done well in places, it done really, really well. And so many ideas it brought up, some of the character dynamics, I feel. And it, it's an impressive thing to say we're 30-odd books into the Discworld at this point in, in reading them uh, for this podcast. Some of the dynamics and ideas felt wholly fresh, like that Polly uh, blouse mm. Jackram dynamic like felt like something he hadn't touched on before. Uh, the, the internalized misogyny stuff, I, I, he may have touched on before, but he's exploring it to a degree agree that he certainly hasn't to this depth in any previous book so i think it's really impressive that you know to go further and further into them and to encounter something that uh is very fresh um you know as whether there's character dynamics teams ideas so you know uh, yeah i liked it you that's good yeah um I think it's definitely an impressive feat like to do like what he did like he definitely touched as you said touched on some interesting ideas I'm glad it's not any longer because um, like as as good as it is it does have its problems 
like some parts of it I felt drag a little but like never so much that I'm like oh god when is this going to end but I feel like he pushed it right up to the limit almost there's sometimes where I was where I was almost like that but something then would always happen to make me get more engaged again so like it's a it's a good book but not without its problems so like I I enjoyed it but yeah just I wouldn't rank it as highly as like some of my absolute favorite of the Discworld ones but it's definitely a very competent well-written book yeah even if it does have its problems <laughs> well before we do get to the matter of ranking it we have a, a few twitter uh comments to take um first of all john lee at john lee media said uh, i i alluded to this before he said the first discworld book i read picked it up for no good reason never heard of terry pratchett i start reading about trolls and dwarves and thought i don't read books about trolls and dwarves but i persevered and i went on to read every discworld novel um which is lovely <laughs> uh, and i think you know it's i actually I'm, i'll just put out a call later on twitter uh, um probably will have by the time this episode gets out which is for people of like what was their first how they first encountered Discworld and what their first book was because I'd say for so many mm. people you have different ones different stories um, and it's interesting as well given what, oh. what like I was wrestling with like with the use of Vimes and Angula of like is it too reliant on you knowing them from the watch books obviously for John Lee you know it wasn't so so maybe I was I was making uh, too much of that it seems it seems like a very grim book to come in on, like compared yeah, to like, yeah. some of the other more lighter ones. Like, what was your first uh, Discworld um, book? It to? was it, the Life Fantastic on audiobook, uh, read by Tony Robinson. Yeah, <laughs> of all, pretty much the only one that you could <laughs> no, read yeah, on its yeah. own, like that you and you still managed to cover. Then I got the Color of Magic on audiobook. <laughs> what about you? Um, so I remember I read like the first 30 pages of Feet of Clay and then when I realized that it was like the I don't know 15th or 16th book in the series or whatever I was like oh okay so I stopped put it down and then I went on went to read the Color Color of Magic moved on from there yeah okay did it by the book I, I just I, yeah well see I remember I remember when I was reading uh, Feet of Clay I remember the first page had me in fits of laughter so I was like <laughs> I just thought that was br- like when you know when like you've, you're only one page in you're like oh this is brilliant yeah. so I was like okay I should read all of these doesn't Peter Clay open with the murder of an old man yeah so yeah, a lot for your sense of humour that think, sadist do you know what I think it was I think they just said the word bastards in it like about <laughs> one page in and because I was like 11 or 12 years old I was like oh that's a dirty yeah. word hilarious that would probably be enough <laughs> for me that been all it was um so Steve at El Calabaster, regular commenter, says uh, int- doesn't really have any questions. Interesting book with interesting torrents. Can't wait to hear, hear us talk about it. Um, interesting to see Vimes as a villain, though I suppose we, we got that in, in The Truth. Um, and yeah, I said, I, I'm, I kind of find it like, I suppose he's, he's not really a villain because early on we learn that he's a much more reasonable character than the Borogravians victimized. Mm. But he sort of, so, still nominally is in that he's still in charge of this invading alliance you know um as i said i'm i, I wasn't mad like I, I feel we don't learn anything about volumes seeing him from this different point of view than we would you know than we knew anyway as opposed to the truth which i think gives us a more thought-provoking different perspective on volumes uh, he also mm, says yeah. it's, it's fascinating to see the concept of the duchess as a small god crop up um, and I think that actually, uh, again, going back to John Lee, who said it was the first book he, he read, uh, I think me having read this like 
I, I don't know how many Discord books I'd read when I initially read this, but I, I think this was a weird bit for me, where it's like the idea that the Duchess is dead, but has been kind of invested with the belief of the people, and he's sort of just small god type character that can live on through Wazir, and the idea that Nugan is dead because no one really believes in him. I remember that scene much more heavy-handed to me done when reading it now, where I've read all the other Discord books, and this is sort of part of Discworld's uh, lore, and how... Uh, and Sorry, got someone chattering away outside. Um, but where this is part of Discworld lore and how things work, you know, where gods run in belief and so on. And so this revelation at the end of, oh, like no one believes in Nugan, so he's really dead. Just give him up. That makes perfect sense to me now, you know. And I feel like maybe it, it sort of, it felt like a kind of heavy handed metaphor come to life when I read it the first time. Do you know, actually, what's interesting now, just based on that comment that I hadn't thought of at all during the, when I was reading it, but now it's kind of come to stark realization. So the idea of like the Duchess, like being imbued with the power of belief and becoming a small god, like, I mean, if we're going by the logic of Discworld, right, that's presumably not actually the Duchess herself then who's speaking, but just this idea that has been brought to like life who would, of course, have the personality of the Duchess. So maybe like the Duchess who yeah. is imbued with belief, like it's just like this invention of nothing else. Like just, it's literally just like uh, belief materialized and not actually the same as the Duchess herself. Yeah, well, she actually refers to it when she, um, it's sort of, because when she's uh, possessing Wazer, she says it's so good to have a body again, implying that like she has the memory of the Duchess who had, you know, corporeal form as a human. But she also hmm. talks at a remove about herself when she was alive, saying, like, I'm not worshipping, I was a kind of vapid, silly woman, uh, implying that she's a kind of completely different sort of being than when she was just a normal human. So, yeah, hmm. I think it's sort of between the two, where it is a continuation of her when she's alive, but through that power of belief, she's kind of become a completely different being than, say, just living on as a ghost or something. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> right. And uh, Wizard of White Tulip um, says, glad to have you back. Uh, thanks very much. Glad to be back. Uh, he said, really enjoyed reading this one a couple of months back, seeing Polly trying to learn from both Jackerman and Blouse and each had their moments. Jackerman's right more often than not, I think, but Blouse wasn't just a naive buffoon, which fits into what we're saying. He said, this one is also a yep. better commentary on war than Jingo. Jingo is about the leaders of war, the causes and political aspects rather than the reality of it. In this one, we spend more time with the people fighting as such new characters really make the book work. What do you think of that? Because you you weren't, uh, you were just saying you weren't as enamored with the, the characters, but you feel like it's a better war book than Jingo because of its underground focus? Oh, oh yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. Like, uh, yeah, I admit, like, I wasn't as enamored, as enamored with the characters, but that's not to say that, like, the narrative itself isn't engaging. So, yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think that is a much better war book than Jingo was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no, I, I'd agree too. I mean, I think the stuff about the sort of, like, horror of war stuff about, and just the general grimness, like, you, you said, about, like, this being your first, John Lee's first book, that what, what a grim one to begin with. There's this real just sense of, <coughs> Sorry, hopelessness. Yeah, and melancholy, and just grimy grimness. Whether it's some talking about like the, the crappy food they have to eat at first, and you know the, having no proper weapons, and just trekking through these dull backdrops. Yeah, like like that really hammers it home. But you also get stuff about the kind of 
hypocrisy and horse trading and real politique of the uh, the cause of war that Jingo attempts to give with stuff like the trial at the end and how they've got to come to this kind of official story about what happened because the real one isn't satisfactory uh, with the scenes with Vimes when he's kind of is clearly doesn't really approve of what's going on but he can't just you know instantly crack heads and say war's over everyone you know he's sort of got to work within to an extent within this system he he thinks is utterly stupid so yeah I think it is a much better war book than, than Jingo and, and lastly Ag asks Berdiana uh, says any comments on the LGBTQ plus representation in Pratchett's books in general and Monsters Regiment in particular uh, for example uh, Yaya as an arrow ace icon and the dwarves idea about gender and uh, Berdiana uh, being Chilean uh, Yaya is Granny um, Granny Weatherwax as an arrow ace Ar- arrow ace is a uh, um, what do you call it uh, Derivation I, I actually hadn't come across, but it's aromantic, asexual, um, because obviously Granny never ends up with anyone. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a big topic, and I don't know whether when we finish doing all the books, whether we'd like do an episode or two on like particular themes or ideas across the whole of Discworld that we could kind of dive into them in depth i don't feel we're gonna have the room to do this one to justice here uh i think it's interesting how it evolves i I remember ages ago i can't remember what episode it was or why but you asked me whether there was any gay characters in future discord books and i i I think i I referred to your man in is it like pepe in in uh unseen academicals um but we have like oh, I think yeah. like far and away at this point the most prominent uh, on-screen you know uh, queer couple in Lofty and Tonker here, um, who we don't get into mm. them in very much depth. But I think their the way their relationship is is depicted is is kind of interesting, and them being the only ones they can depend on in a world that like represses and and rejects them, and how they sort of I suppose like. Uh, meet parts of them fill in the blanks for each other like uh lofty has this inward looking tender side that like the gruffer tonker lacks but tonker is also the kind of um you know strong one outwardly that's going to try and protect lofty mm. uh so i think and like as um there's a certain sweetness to that relationship even though they've been through like some really horrific stuff um and we don't get a, a huge amount uh, more of it. Oh, the other one in Unseen Academicals is your man, the, the Maradona parody, who, like, like Ponder Stevens, mm. like, directly says he's gay, and you have this scene with Rid Cully kind of saying, all right, uh, which I remember reading at the time and feeling really conflicted on, because I'm like, I once, I know, maybe conscious of the fact that, like, Pratchett has sort of realized, in fairness to him, he's writing these books over the course of, like, almost 30 years, uh you know, the yeah. attitudes on these things evolve. And also not only attitudes on, like, whether you find uh, queer relationships, identities acceptable, but also as as an artist or as a public figure, your consciousness of, you know, whether it's your responsibility to talk about them, you know. Um, that, like, that, that yeah. has evolved. And, I, and, and it kind of felt to me in that, like, he's thinking, I should really be talking about this stuff and making clear. And it sort of felt a bit clunky to me, because I'm, I'm like, we've never had anything like this before. Although reading this, we've clearly had a, a much bigger example of it than than I had remembered in 
in this mm. world. But also, I remember finding Riculli's <laughs> thoughts on it really sweet and kind of like like the moment when you're, you know, like, well, uh, like I'm, you know, uh, heterosexual, so I don't have this experience, but like, you know, both my brother and sister are queer, so they would have of like when you're coming out to like older relatives or people in your life and the idea of them being kind of like accommodating has this extra sense of sweetness of like, oh, I didn't expect that from you. And Riccoli sort of like that's like your granddad or something, you know? Mm. Uh, so I, I remember like finding that bit like kind of like, like sort of awkward, but also kind of really nice in a way as well. I mean, I, I haven't read Unseen Academical, so I can't really comment on that part of it at all. Um, I felt with this relationship, the one in um, Monsters Regiment, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting that it isn't blatantly said you know, it's obviously heavily implied, but not blatantly said that they are a couple. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, because on the one hand, like, oh, it doesn't have to be that heavy handed at all. It's fine. But on the other hand, part of me is thinking is like, oh, so are, like, are they still invisible then? Oh, so, no, um, I think like, I mean, oh, so maybe, maybe I'm wrong because uh, I said I didn't really remember it from my first time reading this book years ago. But reading it now, like it's like abundantly clear, like you go from... Uh, Polly thinking, realizing Lofty's a woman, and thinking, okay, she's gone off with Tonker, like Tonker's a man, and and she's gone off to be with her boyfriend, and then realizing Tonker's also a woman, and having this moment of like, oh, and but but they're still romantically involved, um, and then you have them going off and living this kind of like, uh, life as like, uh lesbian outlaws together uh you know kind of living outside this society that's rejected them um i mean i think like like on its merits in in this book that's that's really like quite good and quite fun i think i suppose overall like you could you could call into question in this world of hell like you don't have a huge amount of it you certainly don't have i think like a queer main character in any books um Mm. again I don't know, I suppose your mileage would vary on how satisfactory or unsatisfactory you, you find that overall. Like, uh, to me, it's never, re- I'm not losing any sleep over it, but it's not me that isn't being represented here. Uh, did, I mean, the dwarves and the whole thing yeah. with gender, I think is fascinating. And I think, uh, for me, I think it's one of the most interesting kinds of ways fantasy can deal with these sort of issues. Like, because it's not a like for like, instant like for like comparison you know what i mean like you could be say mm. uh gay reading about cheery or another dwarf and uh feeling it resounds with you or feelings of being in the closet you could be um trans and thinking it's the same thing of like not being able to you know like uh uh live out your your gender identity like that like there isn't it isn't just like a one-for-one uh clunky um uh comparison uh, or parallel rather and you know like there, it's it's kind of it's very much its own thing like within the world of, of this world how dwarf gender relations works but you yet it can resound so much with a lot of ideas outside of ours like I, I think it's narrow minded and disappointing in fantasy when you just see some issue tackled whether it's race or gender or whatever it is by just kind of like inventing a completely parallel society like on this planet they have people with green skin who are uh, impressing people with blue skin and a blue skin leader 
Blarton Bluter Bling was assassinated, you know, and like 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 stuff mm-hmm. like that when it's really obvious like it's a, it's a one to one parallel it's not not that like some you know whatever sometimes that's like interest like effective but it's it's never really as interesting as as it could be here where i feel like like the be- yeah the best ways in which any book uh, certainly any speculative fiction book resounds with issues in our world is in ways where like if you had no idea about those issues at all, it would still work within the confines of the book. But having an idea about them, it resounds all the more so, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and as for Granny, yeah, I, 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 again, I think it's fascinating. I, I don't know whether, like, for uh, aromantic asexual readers, whether they wish it was more explicit or something, where she's just, like, says, no, I never want to be, you know, I don't have any... Uh, feelings, um, you know, uh, romantic or, or sexual feelings towards other people, uh, or whether just the fact that you have this like really impressive, formidable character, who I mean, I think it's revolutionary in itself just to have like a female main character who's depicted as like fulfilled without being in a relationship, you know. Uh, but at the same time, mm. in Lords of Ladies, you have these interesting bits where you have her questioning that. You know, she gets these looks into these parallel universes where she ended up with Rid Cully, and, you know, she kind of gives him a bit of a self She's like, okay, yeah, look, I was happy in those parallel universes. Yes, that doesn't lead to her getting with Rid Cully in those ones. She's also happy in this universe, being with no one. Uh, and mm. I think that's really interesting. I think that's really... Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose, like, depicts a whole range of identities and resolutions for characters that they aren't often allowed to have in, in other books, other series. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing with Granny Weatherwax, I mean, personally, because of what you just said with Lords and Ladies, I don't really like to think of her as like an asexual kind of person, simply because that implies that if you're not asexual, you can't be happy. Like, uh, you know... Like, like the only reason she's happy in her own personal state is because that's the only way she can be happy. Oh, I happy. see what you mean. I much prefer the idea. I, I see what you mean in that, like, it's like, uh, if if thinking of her as asexual is like saying, oh, well, this is why she's happy as a single, you know, like, uh, old, old yeah. woman. And it's, it's perhaps, like, more empowering to think, like, uh, well, like, she can, you know, have the potential to be attracted to other people, but has just reached a point in her life where she's she's satisfied uh, living on her own. I guess what, I suppose that's why I kind of mm. like the ambiguity of it, you know, in that like you can read her as yeah. asexual, you can read her as not. Um, so so it allows for for both of those. Uh, you know, certainly the the fact that she the parallel version of her isn't like Enzo Riccoli, for me doesn't like foreclose mm. the idea that oh that must mean in in the prime disc universe that we read about she isn't either because obviously you know parallel universes you see this across all fiction like you have a parallel universe where x character is evil that doesn't mean like they're secretly evil in our universe you know um yeah that's the thing like i'm always quite happy like i i there's very rarely that i think that ambiguity in a lot of these issues is a bad thing like i i I enjoy ambiguity in a character where you have to kind of fill in the blanks yourself and like for me like yeah I personally feel that like that's not what uh, 
I don't feel like Granny Witherwax is an asexual character, but that doesn't mean that's simply the way it is. You know, the ambiguity is what makes it interesting, yeah. Uh, in terms of the LGBTQ plus in general in the Discworld books, uh, as you said, like, you know, we're, we're both heterosexual, so we can't really talk too much on, like, how much, uh, you know, they're represented in these books. I personally feel that they're probably under-represented, rep, uh, but as you said, like, I can't say for certain because it's not my demographic. I'd imagine if I was that demographic, I would feel like they were under underrepresented, but I couldn't say for sure. Simply, simply put. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I feel similar and like there's kind of limits to uh, how confidently I, I can, well, yeah, how confidently I can speak about this because I'm always wary of uh, giving off the impression like that, like I think my view is the uh, the main one or the right one or whatever, like similar to yourself, but ambiguity with these things, I, I I generally find it more artistically satisfying, but I would also fully understand if for like people, you know, of whatever uh, minority identity persuasion, be it like, you know, gender, sexuality based or, you know, uh, um, neurological, like say you, you often have like a lot of characters, sort of besides the point here but like you say you have many characters that are like potentially like on the autism spectrum in like it works with speculative fiction but it, mm. they never come out and say it um and i i would perfectly understand if for like like anyone in in these issues where they're like i don't want to pussyfoot around i want uh, it's more satisfying to me if like you know the text like uh makes it clear to me that this this character is you know it, like it like is of this group i find the ambiguity not in all cases, but like certainly in this case with something like Granny, more satisfying. But I would understand why like others would like wish it, it was more um, explicit. Uh, but mm. um, all that being said, I suppose we, we get to ranking this fella now. This is going to be a tough one. Oh, yeah. Our immediate point of comparison that came up in the questionnaire is Jingo as a war book. Uh, and for me, this would probably go definitely above Jingo. I mean, we both agreed it was better. Yeah, 100%. We yeah. Free Men is immediately above Jingo. We done that like last time, so that's relatively fresh in our heads. You putting it above We Free Men, would you say? Um, Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, yeah, I think I would likewise. I think it, it kind of, as I said, deals with richer ideas and uh, in more depth. Uh, Thief of Time above We Free Men? I think I'd probably put it above Thief of Time as well. Yeah, yeah. likewise. Um, like, actually, we had a similar complaint about them seeming a little messy, but I think that complaint's a lot more substantial than Thief of Time. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Um, Amazing Morris above Teeth of Time. Hmm. Now this is going to be tricky because I liked the Amazing Morris a lot. Mm. I know you you didn't enjoy it as much as I did. Um, mm, this this is this is the issue that we've had with a couple of books. Whereas, like uh, this book is certainly a lot more ambitious. I feel. Um, whereas the Amazing Morris is like a much smaller, but as a result, a much tighter mm -hmm. book. Um, oh, it's a tough one. Um, I think... Uh, I could probably go either way on this. If you put a gun to my head and said, which one would you go for? I'd probably put this... I'd probably put Amazing Morris just above this one, I think. Maybe. But I, I probably I could I could lean either way on it. If you felt the other way, I'd probably yeah, be okay. Yeah, for me, I I see what you mean about the and it's it's a thing like 
I mean, when you're sort of in this very trivial uh, activity we all do of like ranking any kind of cultural text against each other, that question of like the ambitious failure versus the kind of like efficient success, uh, like which one do you mm. put above? For me, I suppose I would put this above because like while it fails in some ways, it succeeds in others that are really excellent. You know what I mean? Like I would, I, I, I could mm. probably lean more towards like, oh, Morris sets out its stall to do particular things and, and does does them uh, well. Ergo, it goes above. If I thought Monsters Regiment kind of failed overall in all of the different ideas it was dealing with, but failed gloriously, I think it maybe fails or comes up short in some, but succeeds brilliantly mm. with others. Um, so that's why it would go above that for me. That's perfectly fair. So above that then is Weird Sisters and moving pictures um above that and i'm I'm thinking probably like it's going somewhere around here uh like maybe you could call this one more yeah. ambitious and it's dealing with heavier stuff but weird sisters and moving pictures are also have some very clever concepts at the heart of them they probably deal with them uh, a lot more efficiently than monsters regiment does um mm. moving pictures is a kind of an interesting point of comparison because uh, you you were um, one of the drawbacks for you of Monsters Regiment was like relatively uh, maybe like uninteresting supporting cast and in moving pictures you have maybe like you, again you have big idea dealt with uh, very well but two main characters who maybe aren't particularly interesting I would argue that's uh, yeah no that that was true we were saying that Ginger like, yeah, probably they're... more interesting than Victor uh, in in a lot of ways um I remember I loved moving pictures reading it like. Uh um it's again it, it's it's the thing it's the ambition versus uh you know efficiency for uh, argument that we're coming back to again like again i feel like i feel like this would probably be above moving pictures to be honest with you because even though i loved it moving pictures had some failings as well that and like you know this one had higher ambition i'd probably put it above moving pictures i think and carpe Jugulum, okay. which is just above, I'd probably put it above that too. Yeah, I was about to say, Carpe Juggalum is quite similar in some ways in that, like, it's, you know, uh, ambitious and falls short. And I, I think maybe because this feels a lot fresher than Carpe Juggalum, because, like, Carpe Juggalum felt like, oh, he's going for some of the ideas, he's already done better. Whereas, yeah, this, even if some of the things aren't dealt with quite as well, it's like, they, a lot of them do feel really new. Like, even the way he deals with war here is, you know, very different than Jingo. So above Carpe Juggalum is Last Hero, and I think this is where the uh, inexorable rise of Monsters Regiment stops. Because for me, Last Hero, and and you probably feel differently, but for me, Last Hero is one where it's both small and efficient, but also deals with really big ideas really well. Um, yeah. And maybe its ideas aren't as big or don't have the depth that Monsters Regiment does, but it deals with them a little better and and um like unlike say you know you, you couldn't say it's similar to like last hero is an amazing morris of like unambitious but efficient it's ambitious and efficient maybe monster regiment is more ambitious but i i know i think last hero for me would kind of uh pip it to the post I think you're probably right. I remember the main issue that I had with The Last Hero was... Um, so I remember as an experiment, I read that um, without the pictures. I was reading what was essentially a PDF version to mm -hmm. kind of... Because I remember I'd read it before as a 
gigantic picture book and it was great and then I read it as a PDF and I remember thinking oh well it doesn't quite uh, hold quite as well but I also remember thinking to myself well I am reading it in a way that was not the intended way to be read it should be read as a picture book because that was it was kind of the introduction of uh, is it Paul Kidby was the old artist wasn't he? Uh, no Josh Kirby was the old one it was, oh so uh, Paul, Paul Kidby is it Paul Kidby? Uh, it, yes, but it was. Let's see. I'm I'm looking at it now. Uh, oh yeah, well, it was the first thing he done with Paul Kidby because Josh Kirby yeah. done the cover to Thief of Time. So I think that was like this was kind of a standing point there, as if kind of to establish the new artist. And for that reason, I think as that collaboration of a writer and new artist, I think it stands up brilliantly. Then, so yeah, I I think the Monsters Regiment should probably be the new number 16 then just below the last hero would you agree with that yeah yeah i'm happy that new number 16 below last hero above carpe juggalum um so that's that's monstrous regiments uh ranked up next we have hatful of sky which is one i haven't read uh I'm, I, I was kind of like saving the tip most of the rest of the tiffany ones for this um for this podcast uh so i'm looking forward to that I think I read that years ago, but I remember absolutely nothing about it. I can't even remember what the plot is, so just I have a vague inkling in my head of Tiffany continuing her training, but I've no idea what exactly the plot is, so that'll be fun to come back to. Uh, for the moment, that is us fairly well, listeners. If you want to get in touch, you can find us at Radio Moorpark on Twitter. You can search for us on Facebook at Radio Moorpark. Uh, you can email us radiomorepork at gmail.com you want to find more episodes well presumably like you found this one they're on all sorts of podcast streaming services podcast addict iTunes uh, and a host of others um, if you'd like uh, leave us a rating and a review uh, that always helps um, spread the word uh, and um, we always appreciate that very much uh, but for the time being there remains but to say goodbye fairly well Stop on this. Simo Batsu.